Hello, thanks for downloading. This is episode 58 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'll be speaking with Dave Wilbur. The October 2019 issue of Golf Digest featured a story by Ron Witten about superintendents and people in the agronomical side of golf who have struggled with depression, panic attacks, and severe stress. It was a significant piece that draws much-needed attention to the prevalence of these symptoms in the industry, as told through the experiences of several individuals who have endured mental health issues, including Dave Wilbur. One of the world's foremost authorities on soils and turf, Wilbur, known as the Turfgrass Zealot, is an icon in the field of greenkeeping and golf course construction. After years of overseeing Growens and serving as a superintendent at various locales, he began consulting with courses around the world, helping them create grassing plans and maintenance strategies. His clients, both new developments and established clubs, include nearly half the names on Golf Digest's top 100 courses list. Wilbur has suffered bouts of severe depression since an early age, but kept his condition hidden from almost everyone. Then, following a failed suicide attempt in 2015, he began writing about his struggles on his popular blog at turfnet.com, sharing his stories with others inside the superintendent world. Now, with the Golf Digest feature reaching a worldwide audience, Wilbur hopes that his story, which is linked in the show notes, will encourage others to come forward with their health issues and seek appropriate help. I invited Dave to come on the podcast to talk about his battles with depression and how this story came about. But in truth, he's been on my list from almost the beginning. As someone so proximate to many of the best courses built in the last 25 years, he's a nearly bottomless source of great stories and vital information. I also thought it was time to bring in someone from the turf side of the business to try to tie architecture into maintenance and to help explore how soils and grasses and climates affect architecture and the way we play. It's far more complex than we typically know. Being the turf and agronomy expert that he is, I feared talking to him would be akin to sitting down with an astrophysicist after you've just watched a cool presentation at the planetarium about the expanding universe. Your brain is going to be working on overdrive, and he's only going to be needing about 1% of his to talk to you. That might have been true, but you wouldn't know it. Dave is simply one of the coolest dudes in golf. The dude, actually. And incredibly informative and easy to talk to. You can check him out on his own podcast, The Turf Grass Zealot, on Turfnet Radio. We spoke a lot about the magazine story and the stress and pressure imminent in the field of greenkeeping. Of course, we also talked a lot about golf, grass, and some of the amazing places he's helped create. Most importantly, I, and I know others, appreciate his willingness to be open and discuss the important issue of depression that touches so many people in ways most of us will never know. I hope this conversation can help in some small way. Let's roll tape. Here's Dave Wilbur. We have um, our own language, <laughs> you know, in Greenkeeper world that um, startles some people because they think, geez, I've been around golf a long time and I still don't know what these guys are talking about. I think, you know, you'd, so. yeah, you'd have to. I mean, you're dealing with <laughs> mathematical equations and chemicals and things. So, you know, there's got to be a way to talk about that. Yeah. And just there's a certain shorthand, I think, that, that Greenkeepers carry. You know, it's it's like we love our little secret society and we're protective about it sometimes, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that any part of golf in a way is very friendly to interlopers. You know, I think we make decisions right off the bat about who's who, you, you know, in, in some ways, if that makes sense. And, uh, um, 
you know, a lot, a lot of times, in a lot of circles, it comes down to simply, can you hit it or not? And in, in other circles, the ones that you run in a little bit more, it's, you know, can, can you speak legibly about, you know, some of the great designs and designers and that exactly. kind of stuff. You no, know? you, yeah. And I mean, I, we've all spent time around people like, like you just mentioned, like you'll be in a foursome or you'll meet somebody and talk about golf and you can tell right away if they know anything Absolutely. about golf courses and design, if they, if they care about that on any level, you just know it right away. Exactly. Right away. And I think, I think, you know, in, this, in a sense, green keeping is the same way. And we used to say, uh, you can almost tell, uh, if somebody's going to turn out to be great in our world, you know, the world of green keeping, if they, uh, well, yeah, almost with the first three minutes on the end of a hose. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it is kind of interesting in that in that uh, there is a bit of sort of natural feel for the whole thing that you know you might be you might call it the X factor, or the it factor, or whatever. And we, I guess over the years, a lot of us have have talked about it, and we look for that. You know, we look to see who's gonna who's gonna catch it, and who's and some people never do. They just mm-hmm. never, they never get one with the grass, you know, which sounds very Bill Murray, but it's really actually true. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard you, I've heard you speak about just the most common term, a green thumb. And it's interesting that even amongst greenkeepers, there's this concept that there, that there is some kind of natural or innate ability to understand how to grow the grass and, and how to treat it. And the thought that some greenkeepers don't have a green thumb is, is, a, is kind of startling in a way. Yeah, no, there, it, it comes at varying levels, and I, I try not to be a jerk about it, Derek. You know, I really don't. Um, but w- but occasionally, especially with my closer friends and stuff, you know, we'll talk about it and we'll say, well, that guy's, he, he, you know, he gets along good with everybody and, you know, cuts a nice shadow at the club but doesn't have a very green thumb. You yeah. know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's not meant to be derogatory, per se, Um you know, but I think there are, uh, over the years, I, I've seen golf course superintendents who, who just, uh, without having to stick their head in the book too much, without having to, uh, be coached a lot, you know, that kind of thing. They just kind of get it. They really do. And, uh, you know, they let the golf course speak to them if, if, if you will. And, and they, you know, they have a really good feeling about timing and, uh, uh, you know, how hard you can push it, you know, that kind of stuff. And so that, that yeah, we call that being, having a greener thumb. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's again, it's not meant to be a, a it's not meant to be a, a bad, the way I use it anyway, it's not meant to be a bad description of somebody's abilities. You know, you figure, well, if you're, if you're already growing grass and if you're already in the job, you know, you must already have some ability, but there are levels there are levels and i guess isn't that true with golf with all of golf yeah. but there there are uh i've met plenty of people who love to have the club in their hand and all that sort of stuff but you know they're you know they're probably not going to be better than that you know than that 18 handicap <laughs> yeah well you can see somebody the a beginner and watch them swing and and sometimes you'll see somebody that just sort of already has that rhythm and balance or those great hands it. and even though they they don't really have any training yet or think of think of music being a musician you you're a musician and right, right you can teach somebody all the notes and how to be technical on an instrument 
but think about like like great uh, like jazz horn players like bebop artists oh, sure. you know like sure. they either you either have that, that 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 innate feeling that soul that understanding of the rhythms and the tempos and be able to innovate or you don't and you, pro- you I don't know that you can teach it to somebody who doesn't have that it thing no it's pretty funny because i have i have a very good friend who's a who's a great guitar player you know not just a good guitar player a great great guitar player toured with Kenny Loggins kind of guitar player you know yeah and he and he tells me it's he speaks about it a lot the way we do you know that i can you know i can see if somebody's kind of got it in the first you know in the first three minutes that they play exactly first first minute that they play Uh (laughs) you know um in his world you know it's just that it's that critical to be good you show up for a studio gig you know you have it or you don't and it's funny to hear him talk because it's the very the very kind of same thing that we talk about you know, with grass, the handling right? of the hose. Right. And so he laughs at me because, you know, I want to be a great bass player, but I'm not, I never probably will be. I've never really put the time into it. Um, you, you know, so, so, but I, you know, I tease him and say, Hey, you know, how's my it factor? You know, am I, am I going to get that call? Am I going to get that studio call? And he just laughs and goes, yeah, not in my world, in some world, but not in my world. Yeah, You, know? you have it in your field. Be happy with that. Yeah, right. You know, and there, and somewhere, somewhere, somebody wants you to play in their band, Dave. But it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be with me. Yeah, it's going to be the, the, the superintendent jazz jam band. <laughs> I don't know if it's been um, quite that, you know. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think when you're, you know, when you're making it as a, you know, as a studio musician in L.A. and that kind of thing, you know, yeah, you're going to see great players, aren't you? Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Well. A big piece of your life was was just revealed in the Golf Digest story that Ron Witten wrote about the. And it really focused on people in your industry and the the depression, stress, panic attacks, and other mental health issues that affect certain people. And I, I'm curious when you sat down with Ron, what what was the feeling that that you had when you knew that your story was was going to go out to an audience the size of, of Golf Digest? What was what was what was your reaction to having that experience of sharing that information with Ron? Well, I'll tell you that, I mean, I'll, t- I'll give you a little bit of background on how that kind of came down with Ron is mm-hmm. that, uh, um, and it's, and it's detailed a little bit in his, in his article too. So, uh, but essentially there was, there was, there's always good conversation. I think on Twitter, I mean, I've been involved with the turf grass community on, on Twitter and the golf community, you know, as well. Right. I mean, it intersects really well, I mm-hmm. think. Um, I happen to like the intersections that go on there. Um, occasionally we thrash each other, but mostly, um, mostly people learn a lot, you know, they learn about each other. They learn the technical stuff too. And, uh, so I hadn't been super shy about talking about, um, some of my life struggles, you know, a little bit on Twitter. And I had talked about it, um, quite a bit, uh, with, with my blog and my podcast on TurfNet. Right. So it wasn't like it was, you know, it was completely a secret. But when Ron reached out to me and said, you know, I'm I'm tasked with talking about, you know, the the not so pretty parts of the golf business, you know, sometimes. And uh, uh, he was really respectful and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't by accessing some of this information and by wanting to tell the story that he wasn't, um, you know, taking advantage in any way, that he wasn't, wasn't using anybody for, you know, for, um, you know, just to get a story, right. He handled it really well. So 
when he when he reached out to me like that and he was just very well he's ron Winton, you know i mean i've, I've known ron a, a long time uh not super close but you just you know ron and he um I, I don't think he's ever handled anything you know badly or you know been at least in my mind you know controversial about our world you know always a friend of the superintendent always a friend of grass people and that kind of thing so i figured ron would handle it really well what i didn't really know Derek is that he wanted to come to Denver and sit down with me and like set the recorder in front of us and, and fire questions. Yeah. And I was like, well, <laughs> you really want to do that? <laughs> like, can we do it over the phone kind of thing? He's no, 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 I want to do this face to face. And, uh, that's when I really realized, wow, this is, this is potentially going to get real. And, um, so we did, we, you know, I, I, I was freaking out, dude. I mean, I was like walking, you know, I was meeting him at a hotel where he was staying here. We we're going to interview, you know, there. Right. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, well, Dave, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because you, like, like you said, just, you, this was, I guess, public information is not maybe the, the, the most elegant way to put it. But but you'd put, you know, some of your issues out in the digital world. But now yeah. you're going to sit down for an extended thing. And I mean, were you like, okay, this is happening. This is all going to come out now. Did you know that how deep it was going to go? No, I didn't know how deep it was going to go. And I, I am, but I, again, knowing Ron, I figured he would be pretty prepared and I figured he would be pretty direct. Right. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't guess that he was going to shy away from, from getting the story. You, you know, good journalist is going to get the story. And if, if there was a story or something he would be interested in uh, for me, then I was going to have to just be, you know, transparent with him, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and that's, that was the, that was the freak out moment is like, wow, I'm really going to have to unzip my superhero suit here and just be a regular guy. I'm going to have to sit down with Ron Winton and just be Dave, yeah. you know, not, not the turf grass sell it, not, you know, whatever. You know, I just have to be Dave Wilbur, and it's not a pretty picture sometimes, you know, being Dave. And uh, so, yeah, there was a part of me that that would have loved to have made a phone call and say, Ron, I've decided not to do this. <laughs> you know, but no, I pressed the button on the elevator and you know, and went up and knocked on the door and and uh, we had a little bit of small talk, and then he lit up his you know his recorder and and he started in. And, uh, you know, three hours well, I can later, imagine, you know, he was a former prosecutor in a, right, <laughs> a right. long time ago. It's, he probably knows you, how to ask questions. I was just going to say that, like, this is a guy that knows how to interview somebody. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, man, he asked some tough questions and, uh, um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the article, uh, you know, featured, featured, you know, four people, Five, really. I mean, if you want to look at some other stuff, I know he talked to a few other people who probably who weren't very excited about telling their story or, you know, it might have affected their job, which is cool. You know, I mean, he again, Ron's treatment of the whole thing was was really good. I thought so. So, yeah. So I'm like, well, I, you know, he's kind of got that kind of, uh, you know, your your cool uncle vibe. Right. And and I all of a sudden I kind of relaxed and I thought, well. You know, if I'm going to talk about this, might as well be with Ron Witten. And uh, I think to me, the startling bit was being being in Golf Digest for 
for, for some things or maybe being quoted. I don't know if I've ever been exactly quoted in Golf Digest, but I know some of my work has been in some photos and stuff. You right. know? And then all of a sudden now what, what people are going to read about is they're going to read about the struggles. You know, like my struggles, some struggles of some friends. You know, they're going to see a little bit of the dark side of the business. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't sure how that was going to land with some, you know, in some circles. Uh, because some people don't want it, you know, they want to, Hey, let's don't worry, be happy. Let's always talk about the good stuff, the flowers, the birds. And, uh, you know, that, that's not it, you know, that's not the reality. And, uh, Ron was very much after the reality of it all. And, and so, you know, I, yeah, Derek, I just kind of, I just kind of really just, like I said, unzipped my superhero suit, sat down and, and bared my soul for the guy. So how did, how did you come out of that? Because I'm, a, I know you shared. You, maybe you shared more with Ron than you'd ever shared with anybody outside of your own internal thoughts. How did you come away with that? Did that have an effect on on you or the the way you looked at yourself or the way you looked at your your issues? Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I think I was prepared a little bit for that, you know, and knew that I was, uh, you know, that I was maybe gonna like, you know, it's, it's like it was like kind of watching. That interview with Ron was like watching the movie of Dave's life a little bit, and it wasn't like a pretty movie. <laughs> and uh, and I walked out of the movie. I walked out of the hotel, kind of yeah. I was a little bit dazed, and uh, kind of like did that just happen? And I had a couple of uh, you know a couple of kind of down days, and where I was like, um, you know, just nervous about the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Just. Yeah, but at the same time, I think there was a bit. Uh, there was the overlying, overarching um, thought. Derek was that I'm 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 good with telling the story if it's going to help people, and I and I I trust that Ron's going to you know handle it correctly, and uh, and that some folks are going to read that and they're going to go, wow, that's that's me too, or I haven't been able to talk about. It some of that stuff with anybody. And if, you know, if, if, uh, Dave and Casey cough and, you know, and these people can talk about it, then maybe I could talk about it. You know, maybe I could ask for some help. Maybe, maybe, um, I'm not as crazy as I think I am, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And that's what I held on to really was the fact that, that, uh, you know, that helping, helping people in some small way, whatever that was going to look like, uh, you know, was going to be good. Now, the question I had in my mind, the question that Ron couldn't really answer because I was I was the first of his interviews for all this, is, you know what, what is the saleable treatment of all of this? In other words, uh, the, you know he had people that he wanted to talk to from the GCSAA, from you know you, you know from a bunch of different angles, and uh, you know would I get swallowed up in the thing? Would I look would I look like the craziest one of the bunch? Uh, what I, <laughs> yeah, going first is never easy, right? What What's he going to do to make people want to read this, right? That was my that was the thing in my head that I, as a writer myself, you know, as I'm like, you know, how's that treatment going to go? And um, and Ron was very straight with me about the fact that, you know, look, I I don't let people, um, and we don't let people at Goth Digest, you know, 
write our stories. We don't let them edit their their stuff. You know, you get interviewed for this, you're gonna, you know, you're putting yourself out there, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, so I didn't have any kind of let me review what you said about me before this gets printed kind of kind of thing at all. Would you have wanted and, that? No, no, right. I would. No, yeah, why? I, I wouldn't. Why? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it would kind of not, defeat the the purpose of the of going through all that. Right. And so Ron did kind of come back to me and say that he was going to lead with me, you know, that I was going to be in the lead paragraph. How did I feel about that? And uh, I don't know that it would have made that much difference if I if I said, oh, I feel bad about that. I think, you know, whatever. I mean, it was just it was what it was. And then uh, and then a fact checker, you know, from his organization called me and went over, you know, just some basic facts. Right. Which I've been fact checked before. So that's you know, that was nothing new. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is happening, right? And then the, and the then train there was is just, left. There was just that, yeah. The trains, the the horses out of the barn, and I <laughs> and I was just waiting. We were all just waiting and talking amongst ourselves, like you know, when it, when this lands, what's the move? You know, what's the, uh, you know, what's it going to look like? And I kept saying, well, yeah, you know, there's no way to know until you read the, the article and see what you know what the total treatment is of the thing. And, uh, um, you know, Casey had photos taken, so he, you know, he knew there was going to be some pictures of him. Uh, you know, a photographer came out to Trinity Forest and, you know, and, and took some shots. And so, <laughs> you know, so there was some conversation about that, but really it was just waiting. And the, the waiting, and actually, I think, was almost the hardest part, Derek, was. <laughs> well, now it's out, so what... I mean, I, I know that I know to put yourself out like this, and the same with the the other subjects in the story. You know, you worry about how that's going to go over and the reaction to it, and if there's going to be any backlash. What has been the reaction for you? Yeah. Well. Um, okay. So, again, I think each of the people that Ron talked to in the thing had their own, you know, had their own version of of. Uh, you know, tough stuff in the business kind of stuff, you know, and I think, I think each of those people that I talked to individually had, you know, a little bit of, wow, should I have done this kind of thing, but had the same kind of feeling I did. Hey, if it helps somebody, it's, you know, it's good. So then the thing breaks for me and, um, you know, again, I didn't really know when it was going to break, right. Or when it was going to hit an online version or whatever, or, you know, and, um, uh, in the digital world, you know, things get published instantly. So, so I get a, I get a text message that says, Hey, the golf guy's article is out. Right. And I go hunting really, you know, Google searching and I finally find it and, and give it a really hard, quick read. You, you know, I just want to see, yeah, right. What's, right. what's rip the there. Band-aid, rip the bandaid off. Like let's, let's yeah, just what's see com- what we've got. What's coming. And then, and then I chose to immediately get in front of it. Um, and you know, with my own Twitter feed and, uh, Facebook, you know, some Facebook posts and stuff and just, you know, Hey, this is out and it's, it's good. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's a story that some of you don't know. (laughs) And, uh, uh, particularly I was thinking about some friends that are not in the golf business, you know, who may, who may, who may kind of be startled. Right. Uh, because they've put their own picture together of, of me. <laughs> and, uh, so I just, uh, got in front of it that way, Derek. And what happened is my inbox filled up, uh, especially on, on Twitter, which is, you, you know, a big part of where I stay. Um, 
and I had a couple hundred messages uh, in the first mm, 48 hours from from people, you know, from uh, golf course superintendents, golf course superintendents' wives, um, assistant superintendents, uh, students. Um, yeah, man. All of it very supportive. Some of it extremely hard to read. You know, uh, some people really chose to kind of say, you know, this is my struggle. This is what I'm dealing with right now. Or this is what I've dealt with in the past that I've overcome, which is, you know, which is cool. Uh, some of it from the younger people was, you know, I don't even know if I should be in this business. And, you know, what's your advice, right? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I had to really quickly say to a few people, look, I'm not a therapist. You know, I'm not. That's not who I am, right? So, you know, if you if you're if you're in trouble, we need to get you some help. Like, you know, you need to see somebody. You need to you need to put this. Yeah. In did play. you feel like some of these messages were? This was the first time that person might have been addressing whatever yes. issue was. They. Yeah, there were uh, a handful. That's heavy. There were, a, there were a handful of people who said, "I I haven't been able to talk about this with anybody, or at least nobody in the business," kind of thing. You know, um, I don't want to out anybody, Derek. I'm going to be really careful with details. You know, I can't. No, of um, course. But there was a young, uh, uh, an, a young assistant um, who, who said, you know, I, I, uh, I'm having a lot more trouble figuring this out than I thought I would, and it's really affected my entire life. And um, I'm you know, having stress and anxiety issues and I don't know who to talk to. I can't talk to my boss. I'm afraid he's going to, you know, can me, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. And it's like, okay, let me, let me just tell you how to navigate this just a little bit. Right. That on, being honest with yourself, being honest with the people around you that love you, you know, this kind of thing is, is really a first big step. And, uh, and this is nothing to be ashamed about. There's no shame in saying, Hey, I, I'm getting my butt whipped a little in this business mm -hmm. and, and I need to get some perspective. So, uh, uh, yeah, there were a couple that were, that were clearly the first time that some of these people, again, I want to say younger people, uh, younger in life, you know, and I could see the 24 year old Dave Wilbur, uh, in them. I could see that, that guy who just was just working his ass off and didn't, didn't, uh, didn't want to talk to anybody about that. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep working and, uh, it'll go away, <laughs> you know, and it, it's no, it's not, it's, that's not how it works. Right. So, um, so it was nice to speak to a few folks and say, uh, a couple of them I spoke to on the phone when I thought it was urgent enough, a few others, we had some really good writing exchanges and here's, you know, here's some resources, here's some people to talk to. A lot of people said, wow, you guys are just inspirational, and I haven't dealt with this in a, in a big way, but there have been moments, and I didn't, I'm so glad to see some, uh, you know, some, <laughs> I, I'm, I want, you know, my humility is showing here, like, you know, bigger people in the business, so to speak, that are, that are dealing with this, not just me at, you know, at my place in the world, right? Right. And, uh. Well, so I that was great. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know your, I don't know your, you know, everything that happened in your life, obviously. But if 
if you'd have read a story like this when you were 24 and 24 year old Dave sees this, you know, somebody prominent in the industry is addressing their problems. Would that have changed oh, your yeah. life in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It would have. If and and would that have been, in itself doesn't that, I mean, this, that makes this whole exercise like ultimately so worthwhile beyond, you know, that has to, that has to add, you know, something to the richness of your experience in going through this. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that, again, going back to when you, what you asked me about, you know, um, about my level of comfort with Ron and the whole thing. And, and the, you know, that was the thing that kept bumping into my head is, you know, somebody's going to read this and they're going to say, okay, I'm not alone. I can, you know, I can figure this out. I can get some help. You know, I don't have to, uh, you know, I don't have to struggle as hard. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would have, I would have loved that. What, <laughs> you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, Derek, it was such a different business. Um, it, nobody was talking about this stuff. You know, we didn't, we didn't get together at a superintendent's meeting or at a, or at just a informal gathering and talk about, you know, our stress levels. <laughs> you know? Wouldn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> not really you know it just wasn't it just wasn't part of the it wasn't part of the game there were no magazine articles about it there wasn't you know no and we all knew i think we all knew some people that had uh you know taken some hard shots over you know a tournament gone wrong or you know some bad weather or a construction project that rolled over the top of them or the you know that kind of stuff but but uh i don't think anybody was thinking about what that you know, what that meant to the person's entire life. I think we knew some people who had some substance abuse problems. Uh, there was, there were always a lot of kind of heavy drinkers, you know, in the, in the superintendent's world when I was coming up in the business and, uh, uh, there were always, you know, stories of divorce and all that sort of stuff. But it seemed like, you know, I had cop friends who had the same stories, you know, I mean, and then we would look at each other and say, it's only grass. And, and you know, move on to our regular conversations, <laughs> and and kind of ignore it, you know. And certainly, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna tell um, even the superintendents that I was close to that I was having panic attacks on a regular basis, you know, and uh, things like that. I just wasn't gonna talk about it. No one, way. One thing I'm, I was looking for in the article, and I'm, I'm not sure. At least I didn't quite draw the connection to it. But is there something endemic about the job of being a greenkeeper? that can will exacerbate in a, in a unique way somebody who already has mental health issues or is prone to panic attacks or uh you know handling stress in a, in a negative way is there something unique about your job that that it is especially dangerous for people with these problems wow that's a really good question uh i think what we've learned what i've learned anyway in talking with uh with a bunch of people and, and, and also with my own therapists and stuff like that is there are, there are jobs, um, where people, one of, one of the most dangerous jobs, uh, in that, in that realm, you know, for, for the space between your ears, Derek, mm -hmm. is that, is that job where you kind of feel alone and you feel like it's you against the world kind of thing. Uh, you know, air traffic controllers, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of bit, yeah. uh, golf course superintendents, are are of 
you know, well, they're extroverts and introverts and, you know, and different stuff like that, like that, that might fall differently on like a Myers-Briggs scale or whatever, as far as personality goes. I mean, there are certainly a range of personalities, but there's some commonalities, right? And commonalities have to do with a lot of times being very detail-oriented, um, being very almost obsessed about the details of a little bit of OCD kind of thing. Um where small stuff turns big Mm -hmm. and it turns really big, you know? And, um, uh, I've seen friends be really eaten up by that, you know, get, get really swallowed up by the, uh, by the obsessive compulsive end of, of, uh, green keeping. And, um, I think, I think all of us, and I bet there'll be some people who've grown grass who are listening to this can, you know, they have a friend or two who, they're totally consumed with it, right? It's all consuming. So there is a personality type that lets themselves be consumed that allows, you know, that allows that in that actually in a way enjoys it. And, uh, 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 and that can be a dangerous place for some people if they don't manage that, if they don't have, you know, decent outside interests, if they don't have a life, you know, so to speak outside of turf, uh, it can get pretty, you know, it can get pretty ugly. I mean, especially for for those of us who are not inside the field and close to it, you can imagine <laughs> that what a shitty job it can be at times. You know, especially if you're at a club and you're dealing with members or or, or just having to to take on that level of of pressure. What you're just talking about and find a way to deal with that because you probably don't get a lot of you know the, the negative feedback is probably equal or and maybe even greater than the positive feedback that you get on in on any given day or week or year oh without a doubt you know if you're doing your job right nobody's going to say anything much right because that's what you're supposed to do right right golf course is pretty good well it should be that's what we're paying you for you know uh golf course isn't what somebody expects it to be and look golfer golfer expectations i mean <laughs> you, you, you know yeah. it, it's pretty wide range they're, they're rational right they're really rational yeah, yeah not at all people yeah right <laughs> not at all i mean a guy you know a guy you know a guy three putts a couple of greens and he's decided these are the worst fucking greens he's ever seen in his yeah, life right and and boom you know it, it starts and that guy walks into the men's grill and he goes, hey, greens are awful. I played it so-and-so and so-and-so and the greens are so good and our greens suck. And yeah, what's our greenkeeper doing, you know? And, and uh, you know, that's a real situation, right? That that happens um, a lot. And then, the, and then the word trickles back to you, right? Like I always had my spies in the clubhouse, mm-hmm. you know, like the guy at the bar, you know, hey, what are they saying, right? What are they talking about? Oh, you know, now so-and-so was talking about, uh, you know, okay, well, that guy's not very credible. And then, oh, but another guy who's, you know, who's more credible was upset too. Okay, well, then now I'm listening. Um, you know, different stuff like that, right? So, yes, it can create a little bit of paranoia. Um, certainly there are, you know, there's kind of that age-old, sometimes the push-pull between the golf pro and the golf course superintendent can cause, you know, some real mental strain. You know, it, it doesn't always just come from members, and uh, the expectations. Talk about that a little bit. The 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 pro superintendent relationship. Where what's was, the dynamic there? When I was coming up in the business, Derek, um, it was really common for golf course superintendents to really despise and and not get along good with their golf pro. Now it's a different thing, 
right now we have i think we have much better relations and much better understanding um of of golf pro golf golf course superintendent as a team but a lot of times and a lot of people were always at odds with their golf pro and when i first started consulting you know when i when i gave up being a superintendent and started into the consultant world it was unbelievable to me how many golf course superintendents were having you know, an out and out turf war, so to speak, with their with their golf pro, uh, just you know, at odds about everything, right? And um, the is it, sort of, really, is it like a, a struggle for power? Yeah, it's you know, a power. The, it's a power struggle. It's an understanding struggle. It's a. It's a. You know, I'm I'm down here at the shop. You know, in the, you know, in the um, in the trenches, and and he's you know he's up there at the pro shop counter, you know, looking good and and. Mm-hmm air conditioning and, and and everybody believes him you know and he talks he talks about the golf course and people believe him and i talk about the golf course and nobody believes me and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff right yeah it's it's there is uh, a little bit of of uh history you know that goes down between you know golf pros director of golfs whatever and and superintendents again i think the business the gcsaa the pga everybody has been a lot better about kind of working and and trying to say hey you know this 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 is actually a really critical relationship that needs to be fostered and you know taken care of and i see a lot more golf course superintendents really getting along with their golf pro and the pro shop staff and stuff you know i mean i I remember a golfer walked up to me and told me something that an assistant pro had said to them at the at the pro shop counter that morning, you know, about the golf course. And I just, I, you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing red and I, I, you know, it's, it's almost like I'm out of my body and I feel myself walking into the pro shop and literally reaching across the counter and grabbing that guy by the shirt collar and saying, if you ever talk about my golf course or my guys or anything like that again, I will end your life. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I mean, that happened. That actually happened. Um, from the assistant you know, pro, no less. Jeez. From an assi- from a, yeah. From a second assistant pro or just, you know, yeah. you know, you're just a, a, a nobody. Right. right. <laughs> and it's like, don't you, ever ever speak about my golf course or my guys that way you know um he had made some sort of comment about the caltrans you know the the you know municipal worker type mentality you know because i was uh uh giving a little class on uh on cup changing to some newer employees, you know, and I didn't want to do it five times. I had five guys standing around me and we were talking about how we're going to do this and what change we were going to make, you know, and the assistant pro had said, look at this, you know, it's just like Caltrans, you know, it's like a Caltrans project. And, wow. uh, that got back, that got back to me and that guy was, boy, he was, he had a serious didn't piece make of that mistake again. <laughs> no, he didn't make that mistake again. But then, you know, then later the follow out of that is that guy doesn't like me, you know, I, and then his boss is like, Hey, you know, don't, you know don't scare my employees i mean you know that kind of stuff right, right. so it's yeah. it doesn't go good sometimes yeah. and you know but i think there's a there's a um there's that idea that you know do they understand what i do do they get it you know and why would they say anything negative about what i do because it's already tough enough that kind of you know that kind of thought so uh again i see that relationship so much better now than it used to be um 
I had a boss tell me one time that there should be healthy tension between the pro and the golf course superintendent, and they ought to dislike each other a little bit because it keeps things on a certain level. And I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you like the, the boss who wants to create competition amongst his, you know, his employees. Yeah. yeah. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. I don't think that yeah. works too often. No, I don't think that was Not in good the long run. Carnegie style, you know, management, really. So, yeah. So, so as we kind of like transition into architecture a little bit, uh, you and I have a bit of a crossover. I, we're different timelines. Uh, you're a little bit older than me, but but I'm from Colorado. I grew up there. And I know okay. one of your early gigs was at a, a golf course called Cole Creek in Louisville, which oh, is a yeah. golf course that I'm really familiar with. I played, I've played i played a dozen or more rounds there. I used to live right. about five minutes away from it when I oh, right no out of kidding. college. Yeah. Oh, so wow. an old Dick Phelps design who yep. was... For those yep. of us, I think I think he might have come up on this podcast once before, but he's a one of those great regional architects who did so much work up and down the Front Range of Colorado and into the mountains a little bit. And uh, right. you can you can go to Colorado and play about ten different Dick Phelps courses within thirty miles of Denver. But sure Cole Creek was a was a neat little golf course. You know, the thing about Coal Creek was, I mean, first of all, Dick really was was pretty instrumental in me getting that job to grow that thing in. Really? But it was, when I got there, it was well under construction. And what happened is, Derek, is that I, my first superintendent's job in Denver was at South Suburban Golf Course. Right. Do you know where that is? Yeah, I played, in, a, in, I played a high school golf tournament there once. Right. So, you know, the, you know, those greens are kind of cool there. And, um, and it was a great place to cut my teeth. Right. I mean, just super busy, <laughs> you know, 27, 27 holes of, of craziness, yeah. you know, like, you know, guys lined up at the gate at four in the morning, you know, <laughs> so they can ca- catch a casual tea time. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, if it wasn't snowing, it was open that place <laughs> you know well, in so Colorado I, it might have snowed the day before and you m- might play the next day uh, it was it was common and yeah. um so it was a great it was a great first superintendent's experience for me I actually um I got hired there to to be the assistant and and more importantly I got hired because they were moving Colorado Boulevard um, which runs along the side of the golf course and it was impacting the par three course and there was a bunch of construction work to do and I had done construction and grow-in work. So I was a, you know, I was kind of a, um, I was a good candidate for that and that's really what I was supposed to be doing and I was there um, not very long, just a few months and and the guy who was the golf course superintendent got a job elsewhere and they said, do you want the gig, right? Which was pretty crazy but i wasn't i wasn't about to say no i should have said no but i wasn't about to say no um (laughs) but the the uh um so anyway we were working with dick phelps to reroute some golf holes and to do some stuff and and i you know i really i dick and i just kind of liked each other right and i was you know young tough go-getter and if dick said uh you know this is what we're looking for that's what i did right it wasn't a big deal and so um he mentioned to me about this job in Louisville that was kind of going off the rails a little bit. And would I be interested in, you know, potentially being the golf course superintendent there, which, which also meant finishing the construction job and getting the thing back on track. Right. And, um, so I went up there and I kind of met everybody from the city and there was a management group involved or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and the first thing I noticed was that <laughs> the Dick's design crossed that Creek 13 times in 18 holes. And, and at that point in time, I wasn't much of an architecture person per se. I mean, I wasn't, 
you know, I wasn't studied at all. I had, I had gotten a copy of Tom Doak's Confidential Guide, one of the mimeographed pages oh, kind wow. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you still have that? Had, I do. Cool. I do. Yeah. I was, I was promised never to sell it or give it away. Tom, no, made, you want to hold on to that? Yeah. Tom made me promise never to get rid of it. Um, but I was, but Armin Suni gave me a copy. Armin was at. Uh, uh, at Castle Pines at the time, and he said, "Have you seen Tom Doak's Confidential Guide thing?" I'm no. Um, so he said, "Well, come, come get it. You know, come get a copy, right?" And he made a copy for me. So, I, I so technically, I don't have one of the original 40s. I have a copy of a the photocopy. Yeah, just just as good. I, I think that's what people say. Jim Rubina tells me it's just as good. So, but anyway, the um, point being is that is that I I was starting to kind of get a little bit of knowledge about golf course architecture. But nothing, nothing, you know, nothing good at that point, Derek. But what I did know is that a golf course, a public golf course, right, that crossed the creek 13 times in 18 holes <laughs> was going to be a five-hour round, you know? Yeah. It just had to be. And it's like, Mr. Phelps, you know, I would never, you know, never say anything, but really, you know? And he, the other thing that was really a problem is that he had some greens right up against some, you know, some big trees and stuff. And I just, I knew that was going to be a grass growing problem. And so um, we were able to remedy some of that situation. But Dick, Dick was very clear with me, you know, I'm the architect, you're the grass guy. Just do as you're told, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, but I, I loved Coal Creek. That whole river bottom there was there was no soil there. It was all stone. I mean, we hauled thousands of tons of stone out of there. River rocks. Hmm. I mean, we picked rock out there like you wouldn't believe, and tried to you know try to import as much soil as we could from anywhere we could. I mean, it was a really tough, really t- physically tough job. Um, you know, trenching, you know, we had to use the, the biggest trenchers, you know, to get irrigation in and stuff like that. I mean, craziness, right? Um, had to dynamite a few things to get, you know, to get some, um, you know, to get some stuff in. I mean, it was a really, uh, I was way over my head. Yeah, that, that that's the kind of thing that you don't really associate with the, like a city-owned golf course having to do that kind of major overhaul of the land. No, and they had, they had, you know, the city of Louisville had no idea. They got involved in this thing, you know, for all the, for all the right and the wrong reasons. I mean, the developer, you know, was going to, was going to build houses there no matter what. And here the, here's the, you know, here's the low ground, you know, build golf, right? Well, the low ground was the riverbed, the old riverbed for Coal Creek. And it was, uh, you know, it was just stones. It was, that's all it was, was this cobble, you know, these round cobble rocks about the size of your fist. And it was, <laughs> it was a really rough gig. Yeah. And, uh, but I, but I, I actually, you know, I cried when the big flood happened and the place got destroyed. Uh, and I'm really happy to hear that they're kind of, you know, they're back in action. Landscapes Unlimited rebuilt the thing. But uh, yeah, I haven't been there for for 20 years, but yeah, so so they were, yeah, the thing got, I don't know what year that was when the, you know, when the large, no, that was like four years ago, I think. Yeah. Or longer. And um, yeah, tough, uh, tough, tough deal. But that was that that job was was crazy. But you know, we were months behind and way, way over budget. And I got the thing back on time and back to budget. Um. And I was super proud of myself with that. And then shortly after, left to go to Northern California to to get my first private club gig. Um, 
and uh, again, I was hired there because they were going to do some renovation work, and we, you know, and I was the guy that could produce that in house. So that was the, you know, that was the trail that I had been on was you know ar- already finding my way into the construction renovation world before that. So I, I, yeah, Coal Creek. I love that you brought that up, man. Well, Place I mean, cool. I couldn't. I, when I found that out about you, I'm like, geez, man, I, I've played more golf there than all, anywhere but about two or three other courses. <laughs> you know, another golf course, I, and then we'll move on from this because this may not be that interesting to <laughs> these right, small Colorado courses. Colorado people, yeah. I know, but there's yeah. my growing up, my favorite golf course. So I didn't, I, I never really traveled a lot. I didn't get taken anywhere to play interesting golf like Tom Doak. I didn't, you know, see Cypress Point when I was 12 years old or whatever. But right. my favorite golf course was. Uh, up in the mountains about 20 minutes or so from where you, where you lived it is a course called grand lake grand lake golf course and at that oh, time yeah. when i used to play this in the in the like in the 80s we drive up there maybe once a year in the summer and play it was yeah. just wall to wall evergreen trees and and yeah, you, yeah. it was so quiet yeah. up there you'd hit you could just hear balls bouncing off the trees that would right. just echo through the mountains and the, it was really narrow but like i'd never seen anything you know growing up in longmont which is n- near Louisville, is you know we had wide open golf courses so having a, a really tight tree land golf courses up right. in the mountains with those elevations was so exotic to me it was just i loved going up there and now I've, i saw an aerial of it yesterday uh, yesterday when i was thinking about this and looked it up and I don't know. Did, I don't know if there's a forest fire, but there's like hardly no. any trees on the golf course pine, now. Pine beetles. Is that what it is? The, 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 pine, the pine, the pine bark beetle wiped out the lodgepole pines in in the entire area. Um, Sucks. Where you know this is right where I grew up, and uh, uh, you know obviously Grand Lake hugely affected Pole Creek Pole Creek Golf Course where I started in the business, yep. you know, lost tons of trees and, and we had worked really hard there to protect those trees, you know, from the bark beetle. But yeah, it devastated that whole area up there. And, uh, Grand Lake, it's unrecognizable to me because it's the same thing. I used to play it in the trees, Yeah, you know, and it was just every, every fairway was a tree line fairway and you had to hit it straight. And, it, it might be a better golf know. course now without the trees, but it certainly oh, la- would, would lack the, the ambiance and, and the, that mysterious quality that made it so alluring to a, you know, 14 year old kid. Right. Absolutely. And the idea that the, the golf holes were actually so close and you didn't know it, Yeah, you know, right. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> no, crazy. That's great. Wow. What a great memory for yeah. you. Yeah. So, so I, I, I have no idea where and, and what kind of golf courses you've worked all around the world. I, w- I mean, I want to say like every great golf course you've probably had a hand in <laughs> coming up that. with the grass plan. I don't know about that, man. How but early – were you involved with Sandhills? Um, no. You uh, saw it, though, at an early point. I saw, I saw Sandhills early. There were some people that were involved. Um, uh, the, you know, there were – there were a lot of us that got asked about Sand Hills because they were trying to kind of figure out what to grasp the thing with. And I, you know, I think I was maybe one of the people that threw in a little bit of an opinion. That was really before I was doing that kind of work. Uh, but, you know, Tom Tom Mead, I don't know if you've ever heard that name. Sure, was yeah, work, he worked with Tom Doak. Worked work with Tom Doak and, and was the, the superintendent at Crystal Downs. You right. know, before yep. he went to work with Tom and they had done high point together. And I remember, uh, Mead and I had somehow bumped into each other, uh, in the world, you know, and, and found that we had a brotherhood. And I remember talking to him, you know, because he was getting asked the Corinne Crenshaw people were talking to him about the, you know, what, 
what would the right thing to do with Sand Hills was. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of conversation, you know, bluegrass, ryegrass, fescue, how does it all work out there, uh, you know, in the Nebraska climate? Um, we, t- I remember me and I talking considerably about winter water, you know, cause, cause I kind of coming up in the business in Colorado and in spe- spending some time on the front range, you know, I knew what could happen in the wintertime if it was cold and dry. And I remember weighing in a little bit and saying, well, whatever, you know, whatever Mr. Young's cap does, I hope they figure out how to have some winter water out there. Right. That was the conversation. And years later, when, when I got shown the Bally Neal property for the first time, and, and we weren't even sure there was going to be water there because the first conversation about Bally Neal was, can we do this without water? You know, what if they can't irrigate? Because water, water rights in that area were pretty tricky. And, um, and I, my first thing was I could probably get the thing through the summer with no water, but the winter is which <laughs> is the issue here, you know, because again, again, you know, not a lot of snow cover, big winds, cold temperatures, that's turf grass death, you know, it really is. And that they would have to have some kind of winter water situation out there um, in some way that, that, that not having water in August didn't scare me. Not having water in January scared the hell out of me. It's interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's something that that the layman like myself would never, you know, we'd never think about water in the winter. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, when I when I said that, but it was interesting is because you know, um, you know, Rupert O'Neill was was the first owner out there, and um, you know, that's where the Bally Neal thing came from. Right, I remember and Rupert. Rupert had farmed, and so when I said that, he looked at me and said, "This is a smart guy." Like, cause I understand what happens to these sands when you, you know, if, if, you know, we, we've had to water, we've had to turn on our center pivots in the wintertime or everything blows away. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, we're talking about grass cover. We, <laughs> it, it's the same idea. You know, we, <laughs> if it freeze dries out there, it's not coming back. You know, it's, so, it's, um, yeah. it's sort of accepted wisdom that when Sand Hills opened, it was a turning point in golf course architecture you know there's sort Absolutely. of before sand hills and after sand hills and yeah. we're still in the sand hills moment now do you think it also in turf grass was that a turning point too because it, it at least it's it seems to me that that was a new place to go the, the, you know the turf grasses and how to maintain great playing services on the high plains and in some of these really harsh environments hadn't really been tested or at least not perfected before. So from your point of view, is was that also like a, a sort of a revolution moment in, in your field? Well, I think, I think Derek, what we learned through that whole deal, um, it, you know, you know, okay. So, so obviously what I saw coming, uh, was the influence of the British Isles was going to come to America. Right, everybody's going to talk about Lynx golf, no trees, all that you sort could, of stuff. You could sense that right after yes. Sandhills. Absolutely, because mm-hmm. that was the talk, that was the conversation. You know, that's what people were. You know, there yeah. was just this, there was this kind of brewing the conversation. Game. The ground game was going to be a thing, and and um, uh, the 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 people that I was starting to listen to, uh, Jim Urbina, Eric Iverson, those people. You know, they were talking about a whole different kind of golf. Right, whole different kind of golf. Yes, and and so well, obviously this is a whole different kind of grass. And I hadn't been to the UK yet at that point. 
but I knew from I I knew from meeting some of those guys over there, and I knew from you know from you know just the conversation that you know that fescue was the dominant turf grass, and that and that those surfaces were old and cool, and um, I'd heard various reports from. You know, from American superintendents who'd been over there that said bullshit things like, you know, well, that's fine for over there, but I could never get away with that in Chicago, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And it was yeah. like, uh, it seemed weird to me, you know, it seemed disrespectful. Uh, and the same thing, like I had bumped into some some guys from, you know, from uh, the Sandbelt, from the Melbourne area, and they were talking about, you know, kind of what they did down there and what that looked like. And so we knew that that was all coming. But the thing is, is here's Sandhills in, in, you know, Mullen, Nebraska. You know, there's no ocean. There's no ocean climate. We, we all, you know, again, all of us that grew up in this region knew how freaking hot it could be out there and and how and how destructive the winters could be. And it's like, what well, what do you grow? What do you grasp this thing with that will play like, you know, like it should play, Right. And you know what's the model? Is the model West Texas? You know, with all the with with some of those places out there that didn't have trees and stuff. Is and because Ben Crenshaw was very familiar with that kind of golf. So, it, but it's, you know we can't grow Bermuda grass in Nebraska, so it's it's not that. So there was a ton of conversation, you know, about what it ought to be. How do you bring Seaside Links golf or that influence of Seaside Links golf to you know, to the sandhills in Nebraska. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know that we've completely even figured it out yet. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us studied it really, really hard and, and came up with some, you know, some really good ideas. And I think, I think we did the work. I think we did the accepted, um, deep study of, I you know I did anyway. Uh, I, I went everywhere in the UK Try to figure, trying to figure out that service and understand that service, and and talking to every golf course superintendent, every head greenkeeper that I could, every course manager that I could, to talk to me about their world, um, so that I would begin to understand that kind of minimalism and and what it looked like. But the thing is, you know, you're standing at Makrahanish, right? The wind's blowing, sea <laughs> seawater on your face, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking. How do how do I grasp Bally Neal? You know, I love what I'm standing on, but I just I know that the numbers say that I can't do this here. So what are we going to do? Because I love what I'm standing on, and that's what I want to play golf on, and that's what everybody should be looking at playing golf on. But how do we do it? So it was great, great, very mental, uh, awesome. You, you know skull melting kind of conversations that that a whole bunch of us had trying to figure out what it is and what it could be yes sand hills was a turning point there's no doubt about that so so, yeah sorry dave as as we go on give a maybe a a quick sort of explanation of of what you do because what you do is is not as simple as saying um oh let's do a zoysia fairway here and a, a tiffdorf green over here you know there's a lot that goes into recommending a, a turf package for a prospective golf course, a new golf course or a renovation. And it starts with, with a soil, but I'd like you to maybe just kind of explain the, some of the complexities and some of the factors that go into how you would make a recommendation to a, a facility. Well, I have my own way, Derek. And I, I, I think you're alluding to some of the stuff that I've, um, yeah, I was hoping we, you could just sort of give a 
kind of a uh, maybe a hypothetical situation of all the th- all the factors that you have to consider. You or anybody in your position, and right, then right, right. you have your own uh, specific approach to it on top of that. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, and and I, I mean, you know, turfgrass people are famous for, you know, you get ten superintendents in a room, and they probably can't agree on the price of a free cup of coffee. <laughs> You, you know, in some respects, right? I mean, everybody kind of has their way, um, and and they're, you know, and we're all we're all very, you know, we're all very kind of you know steeped in that. And uh, uh, but what I, you know, what I would get is I would get, and especially when when golf course construction was really kind of booming, is you know I would get these phone calls, and they would say, I have a site here, you know, wherever here would be, and we need to come up with a grassing spec. And we've talked to a couple of the area golf course superintendents, and we've talked to some seed salesmen, and we've talked to, you know, <laughs> some good players, and we've talked to our, you know, they've talked to everybody, and everybody has different ideas about what we ought to do here, right? And we've heard that you're, we've heard that you're the guy that has done this job, that job that, you know, has come up with the specification. Um, can you help us, Right. So that would be the phone call that I would get. Uh-huh. And, and um, it's like, okay, you know, and then so we would kind of go through who, you, you know, who's your architect, you know, can we all work together or not and come up with a business arrangement. And then what I would do is, is and what my process is, is I would want to talk to all those people that they had just mentioned, you know, have a phone conversation or whatever. And I, I might want to see the site if there's something unusual. Uh, if I can't get, if I can't garner enough information um, you know, by using the Google machine or whatever. And before Google, it was harder, right? I had to go in, out and, you know, dig or whatever. Now I can, you know, you know, now I can get USGS soil maps in a couple of clicks, right? But back then it was a little tougher sometimes. And uh, Coal Creek taught me a lot about learning what's underneath you. <laughs> and so, you know, I would physically got, sometimes go out to the site and, and rent a backhoe for the day and just start going out and digging some you know, some potholes and learning, you know, what, what it was, grabbing some soil samples, getting some things together. Um, you know, we would talk about water, what their water source is, and just gather as much information as is feasibly possible about the agronomy of the whole thing. Uh, and then I would go, you know, back to my own drawing board, my own world, and sit down and start to think about, okay, I've talked to everybody. I understand what the architect's design philosophy is. I've, you know, I, I know what the competition is in the area. Um, here's what we, you know, here's here's what our possibles are. And I would sort of float out, you know, first of all, possibly refute some of the bullshit that they might have been thinking would work, <laughs> you know, that wasn't going to work. Like, no, you guys are wrong. You know, in, in Arizona, we're not going to grow cool season grass or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And just get the dumb, get the dumb ideas out of the way really quickly. And if they weren't willing to kind of accept that, then it's like that might more, that might be where the relationship ends. You, you know, you're not going to listen. Okay. You know, science is science, right. And the temperature charts and all those sorts of things are going to tell us what they're going to tell us. Mm-hmm. Now we got it. Now we got to dig into the, okay, so we've decided that we're going to grow. Let's say we're going to grow Kentucky bluegrass, you know, on these fairways. Uh, now what I've got to do is I got to look for the few hundred varieties of a Kentucky bluegrass and find the best ones, you know, for this particular site What's, you know, what's going to work best color wise, growth wise, 
you know, altitude, all that sort of stuff right. and, and, and come up with the very, you know, okay, I know, I know I'm going to do bluegrass fairways. This is just an example. Then I got to figure out which bluegrasses are really going to work for this fairways and get all that together. And, um, then are those, you know, okay, I see that this is a leader in the charts, but can I actually buy this seed yet? Is it available commercially? You know, all that sort of stuff and dig through all that and come up with, you know, what's going to, what's going to work. And then look at construction schedules and say, okay, when, you know, can we grasp the thing? When, when are you guys expecting to be open? And what's the construction schedule like? And do some critical path planning there, right? And, uh, you know, can we actually get the thing grown in and taken care of uh, in the, from the expectations that have been sold? And if all those things come together, then we, you know, then you're uh, we pretty close to having a, an agronomy spec. And then what I would do, Derek, is once I got to that point, <laughs> I'd throw everything out and start over. And I would start it from from the now I'm not influenced by anybody else's thing. And yeah, obviously I had some influence from the background that I've done. But what I want to do is I want to make sure that there are no other voices here and like what should we really do here? You know, what would be the purity, the what would be the pure and best thing? And just go and just rebuild that whole specification and um see if I'd missed anything really. You know, and uh, the where I learned that was from I read a book about detective work, wow. <laughs> where this guy who was where this guy was super effective in in handling cold cases, and what he would do is kind of go through all the stuff that everybody else had said, and then he would just basically start over and and find the information. So, so that became my process, and. Uh, and once I got to the end, you know, we usually had all the answers that we needed and I could develop a, you know, a, a pre-plant specification and how to handle the soils, uh, a grassing spec, uh, if we had to buy sod or, or have some custom sod grown or anything like that, we, we now had that. We understood what the, what the project management schedule needed to look like. We understood what the water picture had to look like, if there were any issues that were going to trip up anything that would, that would lead to you know, the whole job not being successful, I think at that point they'd be out in the open. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I do it. So, so that's, I, I think, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I'm sure that's like, one percent of the whole process i mean that that was as that that took a few minutes for you to explain but it's probably <laughs> right. just like as briefly as you could have done it and I, I wanted you to to kind of explain that because that's probably kind of boring for you to talk about you talk about it all the time that's the world oh. you live in but for people who listen to this podcast and are interested in golf course architecture that is such a, a small fragment of what we consider we're, we're pretty good if we can kind of figure out what kind of grass is on the green and we feel pretty special right. if if we can uh, if we can name like six different types of grass grasses but we have no idea that there are uh, 50 or 100 different strains of a certain kind of bluegrass do it would it be better for you if more players golfers knew more about what you did or would it be is it just fine that they don't have really much of a clue on what goes into selecting grasses i don't know you know i i was really <laughs> you're um you're leading me into the golf club golf club atlas discussion by asking me not that intentionally question. <laughs> no i understand but 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 it was you know what we did i remember a whole group of us sitting around the table at, at uh um when pacific dunes was first getting started and uh this was 2000 right january of 2000 right and uh i remember that derek because because uh i was my my first 
my first trip to Pacific Dunes was on January 4th, and I bought the plane ticket not knowing if uh, the world would come to an end on <laughs> on one one of 2000. <laughs> so right, so I yeah. bought the plane ticket Y2K. for the fourth. Yeah, so I bought the plane ticket for the fourth of January, thinking you know, You'll well, know by then. yeah, <laughs> right, right. Everybody will know, you know, if I have to, if if the planes will fall out of the sky or what. So that's right, that's right. I can um, drive if I have to. But there was going to be this big meeting, you know, Mr. Kaiser was going to be there, Tom Mead was going to be there, um, he was still with Doak at the time, obviously, you know, Troy Russell and Ken Nice and all the guys from Bandon who'd been growing grass at Bandon uh, on, on the Bandon Dunes project, and we were going to have the, the big, you know, the grass conversation, right? And uh, so, you know, we're going to go up there, and we're going to talk about grass, and uh, we were all sitting around the dinner table one night, and somebody said to me that I should probably get involved with the... Uh, uh, with Golf Club Atlas, you know, and your, your and life it, was the, never the same after that. Well, that it was, you know, that it would be good to talk about the things that we were all that we had been talking about for the last few days, and and you know that it might help all the you know all the the the, the wannabe architecture wizards, you know, learn right, <laughs> and yeah. uh, um. So I, you know, okay, yeah, I've been doing online communications for a while. I'm, I'm good. I'm good with the written word. I sure, you know, <laughs> and, uh, um, and I, I don't know, I don't know that I was talking about grass strains at first, but I do remember uh, one of the first conversations that I landed in the middle of was the uh, sand based greens thing, you know, and are sand based greens really the deal, and are USGA greens you know, the right thing to do or whatever, you know, and it was just that whole conversation, mm-hmm. which, which is, which is really sticky glue. You know, it's kind of that rat trap for the, you know, for, with the sticky glue on it. And I walked right in the middle of it and stuck my feet in it. And, um, and I didn't realize how many people were watching and reading, but not participating there. And I didn't realize that, you know, that, that my stuff would get, you know, photocopied and emailed and sent around all over the place. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so I just kind of, I, I just kind of very, uh, naively, you know, just said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm Dave Wilbur and I'm catching some fame and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about all the stuff I like to talk about and, and, uh, go into the details and stuff. And I didn't realize that there were two things that were going to happen. One is that some people were just going to go, what the hell? I don't even understand this language. And there were other people who were going to go, Oh, this is the real. Now we're talking to the real rock stars. You know, before we were just talking to the, you know, to the guys that were setting up the amps and stuff. Now we're actually talking to the guys playing the music. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's, which is so not true. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's not how we think of ourselves. And it's certainly not how I thought of myself, you know? And, and it's like, there was this kind of weird kind of worship of, of, you know, Dave, you know, and I would get quoted, <laughs> you know, and stuff. Well, Dave Wilbur said, and I'm like, what? And I said to Tom Doak, I said, why did you get me involved in this? I don't want it. You know, and I get, and I, I mean, you know, I, these guys have nothing to lose. I have a reputation, you know, it's just grass. I mean, let me, you know, you guys want to talk about architecture and, and, you, you know, let's, let's discuss, you, you know, the best Redans all over the world. Fine. You know, but when I start talking, I want to talk about, you know, the 10 different varieties of, of, uh, chewing fescue that, you know, that are making me happy right now. And these cats, 
they want to learn it, but they don't understand it and they don't have the background for it. Right. And, um, so that was kind of part of it. The, the other thing that kind of happened to me there is, is, uh, when I was developing the grassing specs for Bally Neal, uh, they kept chiding me to, to put it out there, you know, what we were going to do. And I wouldn't do it because we weren't completely sure that that's what we were going to do. You know, and it was the owner's intellectual property that he had paid me for, and and he didn't want it out there yet, right? So, you know, I got, I got called a, you know, an uppity asshole and all kinds of stuff because I wouldn't give the details of our, you know, down to the wire, you know, kind of grassing spec with all that. And yeah. I thought, man, do these people really care that much? I I do remember that when that was happening, that there was some sort of, there was more talk about the the blends that you were using than than would normally be talked about. I think it was just because you were withholding information. You know how it is? Like when you tell a kid, like you've got a secret and then they they just have to know what it is. They have to, they can't rest until they, you, they try to get you to tell that whatever that made up secret is. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I don't, so I don't know. You know, one of the things that I coach superintendents about Derek sometimes is not to get over technical with members and stuff. Um, you know, especially I think with the younger superintendents or the ones that have their first, you know, first gigs or first bigger gigs and stuff, you know, it's like they want to, they want to teach turf, they want to teach their entire turf grass thing, you know, in a, in a quick meeting with somebody who just asks, Hey, what's up with the greens? Right. Or can we put sand in the bunkers? And next thing you know, they're given a whole soil science lecture. And I've really, I've really coached people to, to back off from that and try hard not to, you know, you know, to give all the, to try to give all the information, uh, and that there are people, yeah, there are some people that want to know and all that sort of stuff, but a lot of times when they regurgitate it in the men's grill or to their buddies or whatever, they get it wrong, you know, cause it's just, it's just overly technical yeah. and, it's, and I'll say, I'll say to a superintendent when they, they'll send me something that they've written, that's going to go in a green committee report and I'll be the one that says, can you simplify that? You know, cause that's just too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, hey, we need to talk, you know, we need to talk to golfers like they're stupid or members like they're stupid or whatever. But I am saying, uh, I don't think it's necessary to kind of give that much information, you know, in the whole thing. And I know I had to rein myself in when I was writing agronomy reports. My, I look back at some of my first agronomy visit reports and I think to myself, what were you thinking? Why did you, why did you put all that information out there, you know? 35 page report of a one day visit, you know, that could have been done in three pages, Dave, come on, (laughs) you know, not necessary, right? Not at all necessary. And so I've had to, you know, I've had to do the same thing with myself. Um, is it, you know, is it necessary for, for a golfer who is, uh, fascinated by golf course architecture, who goes to North Berwick for the first time to understand, you know, what they're standing on, uh, while they're, you know, while they're marveling at the surface, um, you know, maybe, maybe to a point, but it, you know, do we have to, do we have to get down to the, you know, to the actual, you know, blade count of that particular variety and stuff like that? No, yeah. not really. That's my, that's our geek stuff, you know? And, uh, um, and I, and I kind of like keeping that, you know, in our world, but I, I certainly don't, I love it now when golfers want to know stuff about um, the traditional surface and the, and the more traditional type things that we're doing. 
m- when they want to talk about the ball being more alive under their feet, uh, that kind of stuff. I love it. You know, I love talking about firm, dry and fast and how we get there. Those things, I, you know, are passions. And so why not, you know, why not educate as much as possible? But I try to do it in, in more non-technical, less turf grass textbook kind of oriented speech. And I think that's better. I think that's, I think it lands better with people. Uh, and so that's where I'm at. Yeah. Just sort of from the, the long view, going back to when you started consulting in the early 90s till now, what are some of the biggest changes that you've, you've seen in, in growing grass and in, in green keeping? Have we got, in general, have we gotten any better? Because I'm imagining, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering back to that period in time, and, and I'm thinking that there might not have been a lot of diversity in the way golf courses were maintained or the ideal, the way in I, whatever the golf course ideal was in the eyes of me- members and superintendents. You know, I think green was, was God. And over the last period of time, there's been a lot more vocalization of, of the benefits of, of being a little firmer, a little browner, a little drier. As, how, what kind of evolution have you seen over the course of your consulting career in that direction? Well, I think one of the big evolutions I've seen, Derek, it's an easy question for me to answer is, you know, back in the 90s, right, um, you know, pre-Google, pre, you know, pre-internet kind of thing, um, and even in the first, you know, what, 10 years of the internet or so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the amount of information that people can access now is insane, right? Yeah, I mean, frightening. I mean, I, I can type in hashtag, you know, Coconut Creek Country Club, and I can get you know, all the tweets, all the pictures, all the, you know, the good, bad discussions. I mean, my goodness, the amount of information, you know, that, that, uh, is, is available. The amount of information that's available to golf course superintendents, um, and, and to members. And, uh, so it, it has changed the landscape as far as how we, you know, how we talk about things, how we communicate things, how we communicate with each other. Um, it's it's funny. Some of the older superintendents will talk about the younger golf course superintendents thinking that they don't network as much as they used to. They network even harder now. They just do it in different ways, you know, in the dig- in the digital way and stuff. And uh, you know, I'll go speak at conferences, and I can see it happening. I can see two or three conversations going on in the room, potentially where they're where they're um, texting back and forth about what I'm saying, you know, whether I'm full of crap or not. You know, or whether this is good, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I've been shown those conversations, so I know it's happening. Uh, You know, Twitter and those kinds of things, you know, have added to that. Uh, One of the things that I I was very pro about, and I still am, is uh, I remember the first superintendent who called me and said, you know, I've been looking at this whole blogging thing, and I'm thinking that I'll do a blog for our department. What do you think? And I'm like, oh, dude, so good, right? I mean, and we learned a lot about that. We learned about the good and the bad, you know, with putting information out. But but for the most part, it's been really good to get um, members and stuff engaged and, and uh, you know, talk about, you know, here's the project that we're going to do on number 10. Here's what it looked like before. Here's what it looked like 40 years ago. Here's where we're headed. You know, and just being able to communicate all that sort of stuff, you know, in a really cool way, that's been the huge change, Derek gigantic change 
and uh, um, and if you don't handle that right, it can you know it can bite your ass, right? <laughs> if you don't <laughs> if you don't take care of of uh, you know getting in front of bad discussions that you know that could be happening or or put out the right information or don't put out BS, then you know it's it's it, things can go really wrong with that. But right. so that's been the that's been the huge change, and then along with that, access to information has come uh, now. You know, again, uh, thinking back to when I first started consulting in, you know, the 92, 94 kind of thing, somebody would call me up on the phone if they could get me on the phone, right? (laughs) Because it usually was I was at the hotel at night, you know, when we're having these discussions. And a golf course superintendent calls me up and he says, my greens are turning yellow, (laughs) you know? And I go, okay, describe what you're seeing. Well, they're yellow, you know, and, and, and this goes back and forth a few times. Now... Golf course superintendent can send me digital photos right away. They come to my palm, the palm of my hand mm-hmm. while, while I'm on another visit. <laughs> you know, greens are turning yellow, and his version of yellow isn't very yellow, or it's insanely yellow, right? Uh, you, you know, he can send me a quick video of something that's that's happening or a little descriptive, and uh, and we can do a lot more work a lot quicker uh, that way. You, you, you know, and so. I love it, right? As a as a you know as a consultant, as a problem solver, as a communicator, you know all that stuff. I love it, um, but man, things were things were surely different about about how we, you know, how we talked about problems and whatnot. And uh, golf course superintendents now, by virtue of what the 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 large amount of information that's available to them at their fingertips, can look up information and get to information that we never could get to before. So that's, that's really, to me, like, the um, I don't know if that answers, answers your question, but that is the big thing that has changed, you know, as far as the technical aspects of it. And, um, y- you know, I think, I think we're about to see some really big changes. I think we're about to get right into the, uh, uh, we're going to see robotic mowers, you know, soon mm-hmm. be super commonplace. Uh, we're going to see a lot more. Uh, a lot more use of GPS technology and, and GPS things for, for spraying and applications of all kinds uh, to, you know, to not only to save money, but to just provide, you know, a basis of record keeping for everything that is gets done. Uh, there's some really big technical things on the, you know, on the way that are not fluff, you know, they're not just goofy bloatware, you know, type things to do. And, uh, uh, I'm particularly interested in, in uh, you know, like the Roomba concept of like small mowers, you know, for large areas, and just 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 turning that mower loose on a, you know, on a fairway, and having it going, you know, the whole time, and uh, uh, unless it's on its charger, and, and you just know that mowing's going to get done, and there it is, right? You know, <laughs> so that's coming, man, and it's coming hard. It's coming hard and fast. Really is. Speaking of mowing, a lot of uh, amateur, <laughs> like architectural critics like me, you know, will look at a picture and and say like, oh, these mowing lines are, are horrible. And and Eric <laughs> Iverson, when he was on, he said the biggest impact, like eighty percent of the impact that you make on a on a renovation or restoration has to do with removing trees and adjusting mowing lines. But my question to you is: is how difficult is it? if at all, to adjust mowing lines. I, I, I'm uh, suspecting it's not quite as simple as just 
mowing <laughs> the rough down to fairway heights. What is the uh, what are the challenges with that? Well, it can be depending a little bit on irrigation, right? Because obviously the short grass needs a different amount of water than the long grass does, and it may require some moving of some heads or some changes some things around. But um, uh, I I kind of agree with Eric in that. Well, obviously the tree thing, and that's a you know that's a constant conversation. But I I do agree with the fact that sometimes we see stuff that gets you know that gets so pulled in, and you go why you know why why is that fairway so narrow? There's no reason for it to be that way. Yeah. Uh, other than the operator is just you know kind of cheating it in every time he you know mows that circle, and uh, now I know I was always pushing the edges out you know of everything greens all kinds of stuff. Uh, I was with a golf course superintendent the other day and we were poking around this green. And I was I, I was kind of showing him, you know, what I saw as we just walked up. Very first time I've ever seen this green. And I go, you know, look over there on the right side. I bet that was an old bunker that they, you know, that they filled in. And, and you know, you can see where the green might have reached out over there a little bit further and kind of grabbed that contour and moved it over. And he's kind of looking at me like I got three heads. So then we take a soil probe and go over there and start poking around. And sure enough, what do we find? Sand. Mm-hmm. You know, we find sand in the old bunker, you know, down a ways and then we find the you know the green and stuff and i went you know and i just looked at him and i said it's not a big deal to to bring this stuff back you know you got some nursery sod and some things you could uh you know you could expand this green over here a little bit get a couple more pin positions for yourself and and he's like oh that's cool i never you know i didn't see that right um so i guess for me that's that's because guys like eric iverson have trained me pretty good to look to spot that stuff and you know jim jim urbina really i think showed me a ton about about uh you know the uh oh i don't know what would you call it the archaeology of finding old stuff i used to love to watch jim do it and uh I don't. I don't know the golf course superintendents see that stuff. Is you know because they're just looking at it so much every day. Again, this is my first time walking up to the screen, and this is what I see. And then we poke around, and that's kind of what it was. So, you know, I, I and so those things are pretty easy, Derek. It's just a matter of doing it. You know, it really is. And uh, obviously, you know, you can go a lot farther. I mean, one of the reasons that we love the kind of, you know, that link style grassing thing and using the same grasses you know, green seas, fairways and everything is you can <laughs> you have ultimate adjustability of mowing lines, right? Yeah. You're, you get right. the same grass on your green as you do out that fairway. I mean, mow, you know, mow it short out in the Valley of Sin. I mean, that was, you know, that's what makes that stuff so great. And, uh, so a lot of times, you know, we were always looking to how can we grasp this and, and be able to do those things and have that. So that's a different, you know, that's a, you know, that's a higher chapter, in the thing, but it could be done right. and should be done. Did you yeah. consult at uh, Bandon after Pacific Dunes on Old McDonald and Trails? I didn't. I didn't really. Um, other than just doing a little bit of agronomy work for Ken Nice and, and looking at some soil stuff and everything, you know. Um, and quite frankly, uh, I didn't feel like I needed to. You know, I kind of we kind of did Pacific and we did good stuff, and it was. Uh, I had a, you know Ken Nice is brilliant. You know, and I'm like, I don't know that I need to be here, you know, for this stuff. And I, and I think, you know, again, there was some phone conversations and some little things like that, but I don't, I didn't feel like I needed to be involved in the construction of those things really. Do those courses have the same grassing profiles as Pacific? No. Um, old McDonald is, is, um, all fescue and no, and no colonial bent grass. So we did a, you know, fescue colonial bent grass kind of thing with, uh, 
uh, with Pacific because that's what we had done. You know, that's what Bandon was, and that's what we had done at Kings Barnes, and you know, that was kind of the accepted kind of deal. And what we've learned, what Ken has learned um, at at Bandon, is that the bent grass, the colonial bent grass, doesn't. Um, you know, isn't as good in the climate as just the straight fescue. So Old MacDonald is straight fescue mm-hmm. and, you know, doing good. And I, it's my understanding the sheep ranch is the same way, uh, you know, which is cool. So, yeah, there's an, there's been an evolution there. And and the only way that evolution really works is is because the guys on the ground who are super great, <coughs> pardon me, know what they're you know, know what they're doing. Right. So, so um, the, band, the band at Pacific Dunes on the greens doesn't handle the the climate quite as as well as the fescue and yeah, is that, I think it is wasn't that... as much the the short short grass but it was the fairways and stuff you know it's it's yeah not you know there's a little bit of puffiness to that and maybe a little bit of diseasey you know and in that climate right um so yeah it's, it's so funny i remember being at carnoustie with john philip and uh this is probably 1997 or so and he was getting ready for the 99 British Open, you know, so he was kind of in pregame for that. And uh, he's talking to me about fescue, you know, fescue, fescue, fescue. And I'm standing on a fairway that looks more like it's a colonial bentgrass fairway, right? Then we, go the, then we go to the shop and he had a particular variety of colonial bentgrass um, all stacked up in seed bags, you know. And I said, <laughs> hey, hey, John, what's, uh, you know, what's with this grass? And he says, oh, yeah, we've been overseeding a lot of that. And I said, yeah, I can tell. And he goes, well, I, you know, I like the blend between the fescue and the colonial bent. You know, so um, I, it, it just worked for him at Carnoustie, right? So, um, you know, we talk about the fescue surface or the fescue bent surface or whatever that, you know, that older school surface, you know, over time it evolves. And uh, last time I was at Kingsbarns, you know, it's it's a very different surface than it was when it, you know, in the first two years there because it's, you know, it's kind of changed for what the exposure and the climate does there. And, and and what Ennis has been you know adding to the mix so to speak, so yeah I'm 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 not attached boy I tell you one one thing for sure is I don't get attached to the one idea when I start to see that the, a particular climate or a particular thing adds you know adds the need to change a uh, great example Bally Neal you know uh, uh, Dave Hensley and the guys you know said hey we want to get some creeping bent grass into these greens because the the fescue and brown top bent isn't as hardy you know for that one <clears throat> period that we need and uh we had talked about doing that early on but we didn't and i'm glad they're i'm glad they're doing it and it it caused a big old stir on golf club atlas you know um, valley neal changing their green no they weren't they're just adding they're just adding something that they've seen is going to work good right to that and and that's part of evolving. So it's it yeah. definitely seems like going back to the one of our earlier topics about how Sandhills kind of launched this agronomic period of and what it seems is to be really is, is how to handle fescues and what fescues work well in these difficult climates which we'd never really built golf courses in before. And so it seems like we're in that phase and, and you're still like experimenting with it really like you said earlier it hasn't yeah. really been figured out. When you go to a, uh, an older city like Philadelphia or Atlanta or something, is it a little bit more of a straightforward process? I mean, do, do your options mm-hmm. narrow? Is it is it not such a um, you know a mixture, uh, a potion of of ideas that you have to figure out because things are more established, you have more evidence, you, you you're just more probably. familiar with those environments. Yeah, probably. You know, more more uh, more established 
sort of thing, more, um, you know, more of the microclimate and stuff. One of the things I loved about Northern California, Derek, and, and working in Northern California and being based out of there is, you know, you could go from Monterey to Lake Tahoe, you know, in a, in a day, mm-hmm. right? Um, and pass by, you know, seven or eight different microclimates of completely different turf grass selections. I always thought that was fascinating, you know, that, uh, you know, I could, I could be f- freezing my ass off in Monterey and, you know, in an hour and a half, two hours be in Fresno, you know, in, in the full on, you know, Bermuda grass heat. And then, you know, three or four more hours, I'm in Tahoe in an Alpine climate, uh, pretty crazy, you know, as far as growing grass, I don't think Philadelphia, Atlanta, those places are like that microclimate wise, you know, you know, they're not, it's not the same. And, uh, can you so get, that can you get like a little bit almost more. different microclimates on the same property? Can you sure can or soil oh, yeah. properties. Yeah, I was talking with a superintendent from Nashville about this, where they were talking about the one, you know, I think everybody has the one green that you want to go check on when you're starting to feel your hair stand up in the back of your neck, you know, and uh, they were talking about the particular property was kind of down in a hollow and there was, you know, one green that was, you know, worse than all the others because of some tree stuff and all that sort of thing. And it's like, and and the conversation is... You know, if it wouldn't have screwed up all the golfers, I know I should have been growing a different grass on that green, right? But golfers wouldn't have gone for that, you know. So, but you know, this, the climate is such that that uh, you know shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I know you do some a uh, little bit of wine consulting, or that you used to, and that that's what it reminds me of. Is is like in Burgundy, you can have in one village, you can have neighboring properties that have different right. soil types that have, a, yeah. and then they might not be really profound differences, but they have a profound difference in, in the, the grapes that they produce. The grapes will have different characters and they could be like literally like neighboring properties, but the, the soils change so much, but in the differences in Burgundy, they've been, you know, they have a 500 years worth of experimentation or 800 years worth of making wine out, out of those, those particular pieces of land. So they know exactly how to handle it. But in golf, you know, you're, it sounds like based on what you're saying, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a feel thing, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to nail it. One of the things that, that I drove, um, that I drove guys like Eric Iverson and, and, uh, I know Rod Whitman wanted to kill me at Friar's head, um, is, uh, you know, they had some fairways stripped off, right? And you could see some different soil types. You know, you could see the more blonder sands and the more organic sands. And, you know, so there, there's like an area that they had cut and an area that they had filled, and they're completely different, right? This is prior to grassing, like yeah. while they're shaping. And and my thing was, you know, we want, <laughs> we don't want to have a – we don't want to create a problem here, irrigation-wise, agronomy-wise, you know, how – nutrient holding wise and all that sort of stuff so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to solve this you know we're gonna have to be a little bit more consistent and they had piled up the talking about friars head they had piled up a bunch of uh, material that they had sort of scraped off that had a bunch of uh wood material in it and stuff you know that they were just gonna haul away and uh uh, my thought was maybe what we should do is is screen that you know use a use a tub grinder or a trammel screen or whatever and screen that material off and kind of replate with it and and get you know a more consistent surface that way right we don't have those pockets of of you know blonde sand versus dark sand and all that sort of stuff <laughs> Rod, Rod Whit- I'm talking about this and Rod Whitman's looking down and he's just shaking his head and he's just going 
<laughs> um, so, you know, the geek has arrived here to screw up my world. And, you know, and, he, and, he, and I remember him saying something along the lines, well, I guess you can do anything if you got enough time. <laughs> you know, in his kind of great, you yeah. know, way. And it's like, well, you know what? This is a pretty big opportunity right now to get this right. And uh, so we did. You know, we, we, we worked that situation out. And I, I know there were a few times, um, uh, one of the first things that I did with Jim, Jim Urbino when he was with Tom uh, Doak was the Apache Stronghold. Yeah. You know, they had me down there for that. And he and I and Tom, he'd walk the property. And there was this one hillside that they were going to make a cut on you know, to kind of fit this hole in. And I was saying that the move was to strip all the material off that hillside, then do the shaping and then pull the, push the, push the material back on. Right. And Jim's looking at me, shaking his head and he goes, can I just cut that and take that? You know, I went, no, if you do that, it's going to sit there and weep. And you, you know, it's just like, it's like, you know, cutting the loaf of bread, right. It's going to, you know, this is going to be dry. That's going to be the crust. You know, it doesn't make sense. And, uh, He's just he's, he's looking at me and he's shaking his head and he says, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's just a lot of time, you know? And, uh, you know, those guys all want to go fast, right? Yeah. Shape everything in third gear. And uh, I'm like, yeah, but if you do that, it'll be worthwhile. So anyway, to test me, Jim did a few of those kind of cuts that way, you know, in those, in those desert soils. And he did a few where he did it his own way and he learned. You know that the other ones would sit would sit and weep and you know become a drainage problem at the bottom of that hill and and uh, you know the way the ball would react off of it and the whole thing and he goes okay you were right you know drives me nuts but you were right so you can be a real pain so, in the ass but it's I can a be point a pain for those, some of those things yeah and I I know Tom said to me one time I was driving him nuts with something at Pacific Dunes because I was you know I don't bury the good sand right put push the good sand off do your shaping and put the good sand back on stop burying the good stuff and uh you know they just want to get the work done right <laughs> you know there's no t- there's there's you know we're talking about time here and i understand that but i think about you know the end result later you know 5 10 years down the road when you know that's not performing as well as it could and we say geez, we wish we would have fixed that you know during you know, during construction. So I try to, I try to stand up a little bit for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so when you're talking about microclimates, we certainly can have, I know there's a slide that I use a lot of times that, uh, from a golf course in Southern California that had, you know, two distinct soil types and it was running right down the middle of a fairway. And I go, how do I irrigate this? <laughs> you know, and if you don't see this during construction, what you know, what do you do? Right. So, um, so we want yeah, we want to do, everything that we can to avoid that if at all possible if there is anything to do sometimes there's not um but sometimes if we if we can you know at least you know fix the bad soil a little bit and create that you know more consistency then that's a good thing what's the most difficult site or project that you've ever encountered or the one that just gave you the the biggest headache oh man geez derek that's a good question You've never thought about this? <laughs> um, maybe it, maybe prob- it wasn't haunting enough. I probably have. Um, well, I you know, I picking rock at Coal Creek will haunt me okay. forever. <laughs> yeah, I can I mean, see that. I mean, rock jobs, rock jobs in particular are really hard. Um, I'm trying to think uh, how difficult. Um, 
the California Golf Club, renovation-wise, the California Golf Club was the trickiest one for me. And why is that? Uh, well, I think because, um, you know, the Kyle Phillips work there was so extensive and there was so much rerouting and there was so much movement and things that we had to do, you know, to, to get that together. Uh, and the time pressure was crazy. Weather was crazy. Uh, we had a hundred, you know, 200 year storm events during the grow in of the thing. Hmm. Um, it, it was, you know, and they weren't going to move the opening date. I mean, they had promised the members their golf course back. Uh, that thing was, I mean, that was one of those deals where it was like a couple of times, uh, looking at, at Thomas Bassus, the golf course superintendent and saying, I don't know, dude, maybe we need to move to China. <laughs> you know, like, you're coming like, for us like like we could probably slip out in the night and nobody would get us you know kind of deal um technically very tough i think we had to we had to figure out a uh uh we we couldn't bring enough material in there to completely sand cap the place but we knew we wanted to do some amending so we had to work out a strategy of of hauling in some material and then reblending material tillage you know to get it right and that was tricky, tricky. Uh, Thomas made it look easy, but it was it was an extremely tricky deal. So to me, that might that might be the top, you know, of tough of tough jobs. And um, you know, the other thing is we we did do you know the fescue you know the fescue thing right? They're creeping back our screens, but we did fescue fairways, and uh, I I was really under pressure one night at a at a committee meeting where you know just you know the first few months there after they opened they played the hell out of the place and it didn't you know it wasn't very mature Derek you know and it was just like oh boy you know my grasses weren't happy and members weren't happy and it's like why did we do this and I had to kind of stand up in front of the you know a couple of the different committees and I and I I don't know where I pulled this out of but I just said, look, guys, you know, we, we grassed this golf course with heirloom-type grasses. You know, we didn't just go out and get the, you know, the red delicious apple. Right. You know, we found, we found the cool stuff, the really cool stuff. And you guys are beating it up, and it, it, will, it will bounce back. But you're going to have to give this some time to mature, you know, to age, to mature. It's it's heirloom, right? Mm -hmm. And they grab that heirloom grass, you know, which is that's in no turf grass. Yeah, nobody anywhere, nobody screws around with heirloom stuff. I mean, that's like, <laughs> it's like you'd be a real <laughs> asshole to like have it, you know, look down on that, right? So it it um, it 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 got into the. Um, you know, it got into the conversation, you know, around the men's grill and stuff. Yeah, you know, the, you know, these are, yeah, we have heirloom grasses. And, of course, some of them were like, that's such bullshit, <laughs> you know. But others, you know, they grabbed it. And they're like, and because and I, I said, listen, you know, this is a special, special place. The California Club is a special place. It, we had to do special work here. We did it all the way through. We weren't going to stop with the grassing. Um, but these are not the kind of grasses that you push into doing stuff. You know, you have to gently lead them into, you know, into greatness. Well, it's really good now. You know, it's really good. And uh, uh, Javier Campos is doing an amazing job. Thomas has moved on to be with the PGA Tour. Everybody's proud of the thing. You know, everybody talks about it. I think that club's standing in the, you know, in a pretty tough neighborhood for golf has risen considerably. Um, yeah. We're proud of the heirloom grasses there, but that was a tough job, dude. 
that one, that one, that was some blood, sweat, and tears. Way more blood, sweat, and tears for the people that were on the ground every day. I mean, I'm just, you know, I have some battle scars too, but nothing compared to what Thomas and his crew and and uh, and everybody went through there, you know, to make it work. So, in my mind, yeah, pretty tough, pretty tough. Uh, I, I, I was trying to think what else. You know, new construction wise, Kings Barnes was pretty tough. Uh, because it was it was uh, kind of turned the birthday cake upside down. You know, they had buried all the good soils, mm-hmm. you know, with with uh, thick soils, and that had to be changed. Um, so technically, I think that was a, you know, that was a tough one. But the good part was is that Mark Parsonen had had gathered a really group of you know the great dream team together, and we were all working you know for a common thing. So you know, maybe that didn't make it as hard. Uh, I would say Martis Camp the the Fazio thing in Lake yeah, Tahoe right. was ridiculously tough technically because of, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of blasting, a lot of rock work, a lot of, you know, Tahoe type regulations. And, uh, 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 Scott Bauer and his guys, you know, were really under the gun time wise there. And we had to work really hard to get that thing, uh, going and open. Mm-hmm. So, that one stands out as being pretty tough. And and I'm thinking about this not so much tough for Dave Wilbur, but tough for for the superintendent and, and the Yeah, you know, the, the, ov- the overall procedure. Yeah. Do, yeah, you have, so do you have a, a proudest moment or a proudest place? You know, something that, that uh, sticks out in your mind because it, it you just you and everybody else who worked on it just nailed it and it's just it just turned out so great. Um no, I don't have one. I think there's several. Uh, Sand Valley working with Andy Staples at Sand Valley was or not Sand excuse me Sand Hollow Sand Hollow excuse me why did I say Sand Valley I was I was thinking about places I want to see and Sand Valley keeps popping up but uh, <laughs> might be time. but San, yeah Sand Hollow was uh, uh, pretty proud of Sand Hollow uh, proud of Sand Hollow for the fact that we um. You know that that Andy got to do the work he wanted to do there, and it was you know it was really good. Um, proud of the fact that we uh, were able to use the native soils and the native sands there when everybody wasn't sure if that would work, and we figured out a way to make it work. Uh, that one sticks out sure. for sure. But there's a ton of others. I mean, gosh, you know, you know, I think I think uh, uh, going back to the Cal Club opening day there was pretty cool. Because <laughs> none of us could see that. Because you were in China, <laughs> right? Because I wasn't, you know. Because everybody, you know, I, um, you know, I want to make off course superintendents look good, Derek. I, you know, I've taken some arrows sometimes. I've been, you know, I've been, yeah, you know, I've been the bad guy a bunch, you know. But I, uh, my thing is, is, uh, you know, supers who deserve it need to be, you know, they need to be uh, lauded for their efforts, and so. You know, in, in in a couple of the situations that I'm thinking about, pretty proud of that. I'll tell you one thing I'm proud of that probably nobody knows anything about is we built the one of the very first first uh, uh, first tee th- things a little a small kids course in Sacramento, uh-huh. um, just uh, four short holes that in in an old piece near the William Land Park golf course. So that kids could play uh, like a Cayman ball kind of thing, as you know, a, a short ball, sure. and uh, and did a little driving range there and and some stuff like that for the first tee program, and uh, 
wow, you know, opening when that thing opened and there were a ton of kids from the, from the Sacramento area, there hitting balls and, and, uh, you know, being out on that little golf course, I, I, I couldn't hold the tears back, you know, I wish was, we had uh, more, more things like that. That sounds good. Yeah. That was a great moment, man. And there was nothing, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it wasn't special architecture. It wasn't special grasses or anything like that. I mean, I do, I do remember trying to grow the thing in, in November because we were late getting some things finished. Uh, but it was a bunch of volunteers. It was all a, you know, kind of a volunteer effort. You know, I volunteered my time. Um, you know, we had a, um, you know, we did it with a minimum amount of, I project managed the thing and we did it with a minimum amount of money and just tried to do our very best to create some space for kids to play golf. And I thought that was, that was an amazing, that, that's, amazing You day. can see like an impact that you're making. I mean, I don't want to put, I don't want to like maybe misrepresent what you do, but I'm imagining like so much of the work that you do is, you know, it's, it's for wealthy clients. It's for, it's for well-to-do club members. It's in exotic places. I know it's not exclusively what you do, but to be able to build yeah. something where you see impressionable kids getting into the game and it, it makes an impact in their life. I mean, I, I would think that that, I can understand why that would be a profound experience. Yeah, no, I was, I was glad I did that. You know, I, uh, um, I, a couple of the, you know, a couple of USGA committee types, you know, like, like executive committee types asked me to get involved there that were members at the Lake Merced club and Bo Lynx and, and Merton good, you know, from there. And they're like, we want Dave to do this kind of thing. And then they, they called me up and said, you know, you know, we want you to help build this little course for kids. And, and I was super busy and it was like, Oh, really? <laughs> you, know, you know, but then, but then all of a sudden I caught the, you know, I caught the drift and it's like, okay, yeah, I can, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make time for this. And, uh, we did, it was good. So, so cool. uh, I'm sure there's other stuff. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of, uh, uh, I'm, pr- I'm very proud of those moments when a golf course superintendent, I, I know all this thing coming back to the golf digest article, uh, a, a superintendent from Redding, California, who I saw just a few times reached out to me cause he saw the article and he told me that, and I had only seen him just a few times, you know, where, where it was, uh, um, you know, just, a, just some quick, you know, some quick visits. Um, and, and he told me how much he looked forward to those visits and how excited he was about the business after I would leave and how good it was. And he's, he's since moved on to do something else with his, with a family business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no idea that I made that kind of impact on the guy. You know, he, he just seemed like a quiet young guy who just kind of you know needed a little bit of help, and I gave it to him, and that was you know kind of what I got hired to do from his company. And uh, I had no idea that he you know was was super stoked and just felt good about you know about his job after I left there. So yeah. I think there's been a lot of those that I probably don't know about, um, or sure. or just little things. That, yeah, you know, that I have, mean that's the whole thing is you you don't know what's going on in somebody's mind. And not at all <laughs> for both you know and that's an example of this guy had really you know you gave him really positive thoughts you know you had it you made him feel great and i'm sure you've done that you know countless times more than you can know i guess so especially now. yeah yeah i guess so i mean i i kind of you know my reputation especially early on was kind of as no bullshit you know and um you know, not a lot of, t- not a lot of time for, you know, for BS kind of deal. And, but part of that, I think is I kept a pretty radical travel schedule. I just didn't have a, you know, there was no time to, you know, to, 
to chill, I've probably gotten a little older and I, and I think, you know, those personal relationships are more important than they, you know, than they were to me when I was in my twenties. Yeah. Then you sure. realized. Yeah, absolutely. So I ask this question to everybody and usually I say, what well, your answer cannot be a golf course that, that you were involved with. And I, I don't, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. What is, what is your favorite modern golf course? And I won't. I won't say you, one that you haven't worked on. You can. It can be one that you've worked on, but that may complicate. That may complicate your answer a little bit. My favorite modern. Okay, can you? I I think I know what you mean by modern, but give me give me your definition so I know, a, so we're playing on the same. On it's the same a fairway. it's a loose. It's a moving target. It expands and contracts. Like um, Steve Smyer said, the honors course, which I accepted. I think that was the oldest one that I've said okay wow. on. Um, I was That's thinking, you know, since Sandhills maybe, but uh, so yeah, something, because if I, if I say what's your favorite golf course, somebody's going to say National Golf Links. They're going to say Pine Valley. You know, I, we're looking They're going to say Cypress Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I'm looking for like, you know, and it's a way for, um, when I talk to architects, for them to maybe pay tribute to something that their peers have done that that they admire. Yeah, Um and and you're thinking it's something I maybe, I maybe did or did not work well, on. You've you've been it's problem. You know so many of the great properties. So if I say you can't have yeah. been involved, that for you that's going to narrow really yeah. cut your yeah, legs that, out from under you. That that limits the list. Okay, I, I I'll. So it can be anything. Can it be one? Can it be two? Sure. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna delineate this from. Stuff I've worked on and stuff I didn't work on. How about Great. that? Great. Um, I think, and this this answer may surprise some people, and maybe it won't. I don't know. Uh, but for me, Cape Kidnappers, uh, it's still the most mind-blowing site that I've ever been on, and it's still the most mind-blowing place, hmm. um, energy-wise, spiritually-wise, everything to do with the climate. I loved it there. Um, and... Uh, had I been 25 years younger when we did all that, I would have just stayed in mowed greens right on at, at Cape kidnappers. Yeah. That place, that place makes me, uh, every time I think about it, every time I see a picture, every time anybody mentions it, it just makes me light up. So I think I have to give it that. And that's a, that's a tough one, you know, for stuff that, that I've worked on or whatever, that's more modern. Um, isn't it, it's, that's kind of like when, when people talk about this concept of, of their favorite golf course. I mean, that's really what it is, isn't it? It's it's that thing that hits you in the heart. And because we, you can go down the list and say, yeah, this, they all this these courses have great greens. I love the bunkering on these courses. You know, this these these courses have great views, but ultimately it's going to be something that just yeah. you can't really put words on. It's just a feeling well, that you get. I mean, I'll I'll give you an example of that and then we'll get back to your question. Um I was fortunate enough to get to my first tour around the around the um, the sand belt was with Mike Clayton. Awesome, you know, yeah. Clayton was my tour guide. How about that? God, huh? I, I'm, that's on my bucket list. I've got to do do the sand belt with Clayton. Yeah, that was dude. It was nuts, right? And so we, you know, we did it all, right? We did, you know, we wiped the composite with Paul Daly at at Royal Melbourne. I mean, wow. you know, you know, yeah. It was. I had just written an an essay for Paul, you know, in in one of his books, and yeah, so it was just like I read it this morning. And it was God, dude. It was just such a great thing. And you know, we saw Kingston Heath, and we saw the you know the Metropolitan. We saw all that stuff, right? The place that I want to go back and play, the one that makes that made me 
light up and still makes me light up. And I think Clayton thinks this is funny, but I also think he kind of agrees is port C. Now, when, when you look at a big list of, you know, stuff on the, on the, you know, on the, in the morning peninsula and all that sort of stuff, you know, port C makes some people's lists or whatever, but that place just made me so, so happy there. It was the place I want to play every day. I would, if I moved there, I'd want to, be a member at Portsea. That's where I would play. Same thing with Scotland. I I play Macrahanish every day, and I wouldn't ever get bummed out. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying. Right. I, that's that. You know, the Dave, you can move to Scotland and you can play golf. You know, anywhere you want. I would do it at Macrahanish. Same thing with Portsea. So, so I, I know what you're talking about. Like, there's a certain spiritual kind of thing, you know, that happens where it just grabs you and says, "This is, you know, this is the spot." Uh, stuff I haven't worked on that I that I keep seeing that I can't that just blows my mind is this the David King kid thing at Sand Valley. You know, Mammoth Tunes. So you have been there? I have not. Oh have not, okay. Yeah. I have not been there. I didn't work on it and every time I see it I think this is the coolest thing. Yeah, what do you and, so uh, what do you think you, you're gonna encounter when you go there? I don't know. Like what is I, it that seems to appeal to you? You know, it's the. I think it's the scale. I I tend to like things with big scale. You know, and I, it's the scale of the place that really, you know, the pictures and everything that I see and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it really, uh, uh, it's kind of mind blowing to me. You know, the scale of it all. And it is I've big. Seen, I've, yeah, I've seen David talk about it, and um, you know, this was going to be the year that I was going to get out there, and then things got in the way, and so you know, it bums me out. But but uh, you know, that's that's the draw. You know that one. And, um, I, you know, I get pretty, I get pretty stoked every time I, I, and I don't know, somebody, he was telling, was it him that David was telling me or whatever, but, uh, you know, his other stuff, Gamble Sands and all that, but I, you know, uh, that other people, you know, find that more favorable, but I don't know. Uh, some people that I know that I trust, uh, keep talking about Mammoth Dunes. Well, it is something that you sort of have to experience to behold because it is overwhelming, in its presentation, it's just the feature. The, you know, the landforms are. I mean, the Mammoth Dunes is the perfect name for it. I mean, things right. are just heaving out there. It's prehistoric in its presentation and its right. size. It's and it's. I think yeah, you'll definitely love it. I don't know, Derek. I don't know. If that's a fair question for me. I mean, I tend to look at things. I, I tend to look at architecture things um, with a different, you know, with a different eye. Um, with you know, I just. Uh, you know, I think great, I'm, I'm not a great, great player. I love to play, but I'm not a great player. And so I, I, you know, I, t- I tend to grab stuff a little bit differently. You know, I think than most people, as far as what I like, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, for instance, I, I love Gullen and I, you know, in North Berwick and that stuff and, and everything, but like Gullen number three for me is like the fun golf. You know, I'll play number one, and it kind of you know you know the place beats me up or whatever. But it, but you know, but three Gullen three, um, and you know one of my one of my best golf days ever was playing there with Archie Baird, and just kind of walking along, and you know Archie Archie's game is like driver driver one putt, you know, <laughs> you know, and I just you, you know the length was is you know is good is better for me and i can and i and i was just you know bashing it on the ground and and doing all that stuff and i didn't yeah i didn't feel any pressure right um you know same thing with with playing makrahanish the first time i played makrahanish it was very you know just kind of low-key and i thought gosh i just want to play here 
you know, every day. So I, I tend to pick weirder, you know, more quirky stuff. And yeah, I think it's, yeah, national golf links, you know, you know, all those things. Yes. I love that stuff, you know? Um, but I, you know, spiritually, I'm not all that drawn to it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so, it's, uh, it's like, yeah. it's like love or something, you know, right? doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's, yeah that, that, uh, that girl that I spotted, you know, that nobody else thinks is. That's all right. That nobody else was talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> if, not saying that's the situation, but it's the same no, concept. But I, but I think that's, you know, that's kind of part of it, you know, is, is what feels good. And, uh, I think it's one of the reasons that I loved working at Claremont so much, you know, is Claremont's quirky and small and the, the crossing holes and all that sort of stuff and just kind of where it is. And, you know, you say Claremont, most people think of the Claremont hotel. They don't even know that there's a private club all stuffed in there in Oakland. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I love, the, I absolutely love the place. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, that's, that's what that's all about. That's good. But, but for me, I'm going back. I don't think anything beats Cape Kidnappers for drama and uh, scale and just overall insanity of the site. <laughs> and, um, you know, and just, wow, you know, I, wow, you yeah. know, wow factor. Sometimes that's, and that's enough. Wow. It's just, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the architecture buffs will start to, you know, take apart the holes and stuff. And I just go, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I just love it up there. Sometimes that's, that's, you know, missing the forest through the trees. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, so last question, we've been doing this for a while. So let's, let's wrap it up with this one. Um, who's the best bass player? Oh, dude, living or dead either or both. Oh. Let's, do, let's do a both two categories. If they're oh, different. Man. I can't believe you're doing this to me. Oh, come on. I, I swear, you can't tell me you haven't thought about this one before. Um, yeah, okay. Well, Stanley Clark is my, you, you know, Stanley Clark is mm-hmm. my Mount Everest. And I, I, uh, um. How about this? Do you want to do a, a Mount Everest? What, what do you mean? Of bass players. For Mount my, Everest? Yeah, who goes on well, your Mount Everest? Uh, buh, 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 buh. Who goes on my Mount Everest? Stanley Clark, Marcus Miller, um, Abraham Laboreal, and uh, I'm trying to, you know, one rock bass player ought to fit on that list. Who would it be? Uh, Michael Anthony from from Van Halen. Really? Yeah. I, I yeah. always thought he was considered kind of a, a simpler, you know, straight, straightforward bass player. Is that, a, uh, that, and not that that can't be a good thing, obviously. I'll tell you something about Mike Anthony. <laughs> and I, it's funny you're talking to me about this because I was speaking to somebody about this the other day, actually. And it's like, that guy never, ever missed a note, right? Mm-hmm. He and Alex, he and Alex Van Halen, great rhythm section. Ed, Eddie had to, Eddie had to, uh, he had to have those guys to do that. Now, now, you know, Getty Lee could easily slide into that spot. And a lot of people would, you know, if I was picking rock, you'd say Getty Lee. But, but I always thought Mike Anthony, um, he just had that certain something. And uh, I saw him recently with, uh, with Sammy Hagar, you know, in this thing that they're doing called The Circle. And it's like the guy, he sings perfect backup vocals. He never misses a note. He's old and he still has got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a fan. I love it. But, 
But as far as great bass players go, I tend to focus on the Stanley Clarks and the Marcus Millers and those guys. Um, dead, I was going to say Jaco Pastorius, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Yep. And I've spent uh, a, a ton of time, you know, trying to figure that all out. And I don't have it figured out, but I, I sure love it. You know, I, I do. I love watching those guys work and, uh, um, you know, trying to understand, you know, that I I have a friend that says, Dave, you're just not black enough to, <laughs> to you know, to uh, to get it with those guys. You know, don't you understand that you're just talking about the brothers and it's just not in you? And I go, whatever, don't. You, know, well, you don't have the it. We already we already established that, right? I don't. I already know I don't have the it, right? Danny Donnelly told me I don't. I don't have the it factor. So it's, uh, you know, it is what it is. But um, but there's, I mean, there's some great, uh, you know, the the one the one thing about bass guitar is, uh, uh, and the great thing about YouTube, right, is every once in a while there's some there's some stuff I see and I just go, wow, I I. I need to practice. <laughs> you know, there's an 18 year old guy that I've been watching lately who just, he's just so good. And it's like, how, what, how did that know. happen? I don't know. You don't torture yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I love the instrument. I just, uh, you know, I just acquired a newer bass and, um, it, you know, that's, that's a five string and it's got a, um, uh, multi-scale fret like fan fret you know pattern on it which is my first fan fret and i love the thing and i suck at it but i just (laughs) i just think it's so much fun that you know that after all these years of playing i can still pick up an instrument and it challenges me to you know to learn something new you know so i'm stoked about that yeah how many Uh, bass guitars do you own uh about 12. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're yeah. deep into this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm, my this is like a, your, other, is a, your other passion. My older brother's a, a luthier. And uh, a luthier, he's a luthier and a gunsmith, right? How about that combination? Um, and, he's, and he's kind of a Ted Nugent type. I'm not really, I'm not a lot like him, but, um, but he's a master craftsman kind of guy. And he taught me early on how to look for great, you know, what a great instrument is and what it ought to look like and um um so i just you know over the years i've acquired a couple of things that are kind of collectible but still play nice and i've got some other things that are just that i think are cool um so i think i have uh yeah i have about 12 bases and another dozen guitars you know of some sort right and i think it's a lot of it's a lot it's a lot easier to have guitars because they, you know, they come in so many different forms, you know, like I have a, you know, I have a couple of nice acoustics and, you know, and, you know, a couple of rocker type things and a couple of country type things, um, you know, basses, it's, it's like, in a, in a lot of ways, they kind of do the same thing, you know? Yeah. So, so the stuff, the stuff I have is, is great. Yeah. The stuff I have is more, um, like, you know, just sentimental or I think it's cool type idea right yeah dave thanks so much for doing this thanks for thanks for uh sharing your story again and and just hanging out with me for a couple hours i love that derek it's my pleasure man i i'm i'm not you know when you asked me to do this i was thinking that maybe i'm not the kind of guest that you you know that you need for what you're doing and especially after i listened to some of your stuff i'm like well i'm not eric iverson and i'm not 
you know, Steve Spires or whatever. But, but I love talking about this stuff. And if you do too, then it makes me happy. So thank you. Love it. And maybe we should do it again because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm listen, I'm, 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 but an instant message away. All right. All right. Good talking to you, bud. Thanks. Okay. Wow. Dave Wilbur. Uh, first things first, he's a great follow on Twitter. So uh, if you're on Twitter and you don't follow him, he's at TurfGrassZealot. But what a, what a great conversation. The guy's been everywhere. He's seen everything. He, he knows everything about soil and grass and, and climates. If you've played great golf anywhere in the world, around the world, you know Dave probably had something to do with it. There's a high, high probability that he helped make a decision about what kind of playing surface you're playing on and trying to match that to the architectural intent of, of the designer is, is that's his job that's what he does um, and but more than that what a brave person he is hopefully you know continuing to get his message out and his story and just just being honest and and open about his struggles and difficulties uh, in the Golf Digest story and, and a little bit in our discussion and, and elsewhere as well. Uh, hopefully, that does encourage people to come forward and acknowledge any struggles that they might be having. It's a critical issue, and, and if anybody's listening to this podcast, please seek help, reach out, find somebody to talk to, and um, just take care of yourself. It brings up another issue that I was thinking of, and I, I thought about bringing this up to Dave, and we just kind of didn't get, didn't get to it, and we were running out of time, and um, we wanted to, I wanted to get onto architecture. But I, I wonder if there's, and he might not even know, he probably doesn't know this, but I wonder if there's ever been any studies done about older superintendents, guys you know who, who were greenkeepers in the 40s and 50s, 60s, and 70s, if, if, there was, uh, if there's a higher rate of uh, depression amongst them or, or high rates of cancer. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I definitely don't want to like enter into the field of junk science or anything like that, but you have to wonder, I mean, the, the chemicals that, that were being used on golf courses in the early days of chemicals after World War II and in the 50s and 60s, I mean, some of that stuff was brutal. I mean, it's, it's had to be, uh, had to be fairly unregulated and, and, very toxic and they used to use like arsenic of lead in the 1920s to to kill uh crickets and small creatures on the golf course and the greenkeepers were exposed to that so just thinking about mental health issues and overall health issues um i'd be very curious to know if there are studies being done uh, of the effects of of the greenkeeping and and superintendent life and and how that affected uh, mortality rates and uh, clinical depression um we may never know but something that's been on my mind, especially as I knew I'd be talking to Dave and, and thinking about his story. But Dave, thanks for doing the podcast. That was remarkable. Uh, we'll definitely have you back on at some point. There's so much more to explore between the relationship between grasses and turf and soil and, and architecture and the way the ball rolls. And I think we just barely scratched the surface on that. Before we sign off, I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to uh, go to TalkingGolf.com. That's the home of uh, several very well done and important and integral golf podcasts, including Feed the Ball. Also, the Good Good Podcast, which I do on a weekly basis with Rod Morey and Adrian Logue, and we'll also have guests on that. And it's a roundtable discussion of pertinent topics in golf. So please subscribe to that if you haven't yet. Also at TalkingGolf.com is Nick O'Hearn's Tour Mentality Podcast, the uh, the Venerable State of the Game Podcast, 
Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis, uh, and several other new podcasts are, are showing up there as well. So it's a hub you definitely want to pay attention to if you like golf and you like listening to people talk about golf, which I, I'm sure you do since you're listening to this still after I'm this long <laughs> and elegant ramble that I'm going on right now. But anyway, thanks again for everybody for tuning in. I really appreciate you. Thanks to Dave Wilbur. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until we get a chance to do this again, as we always say, adios. Adios.